Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's most cost-effective and easy-to-use electronic flight bag for iPhone and iPad. Get a free one-month trial today at ozrunways.com and by Jet Ride Australia. Be a top gun for the day and experience the ultimate thrill ride in our L39 jet. Visit jetride.com.au slash pcdu for the fastest ride in the country. Well, g'day folks, Happy New Year and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 99, our first show for uh, 2013. I'm Steve Fisher and uh, welcoming back for the new year, my able co-host Grant McHeron. G'day mate. Hey mate, how are you going? Oh, very well mate, a nice month off for the crew here at PCDU, I wish, but we've been rather busy actually. <laughs> yeah, where's this month off thing? I have worked every day since January 2nd. So uh, that's mostly the day job, but uh, yeah, and PCDU as well. We've been hard at work, mate. We have been, and uh, I tell you what, hard at work at this episode, and uh, what a way to start off. In fact, you remember a couple of years ago, Grant, uh, we kicked off, I think it was 2011, with uh, the coverage of the uh, the F-111 retirement, and uh, in keeping with that tradition, we're kicking off this year by talking about the retirement of another classic Royal Australian Air Force aircraft, and that, of course, is the uh, the Hercules, the C-130H model. That's right, mate. The Js may be going onwards and upwards, but the Hs are being let go and this episode is dedicated to the C-130H and mate it's such a big episode even I got involved on the editing. <laughs> That's a scary thought mate. Yeah I know I'll bet you I'll bet you everyone will be able to pick which one's mine. Uh, well we won't tell any of our listeners which ones were yours I think you did a great job. Thanks mate you oh, just oh, hang on you just want me to do more don't you? Oh you're onto me you're onto me already it's the first episode and you're already onto my, my <sighs> evil plans. Well yeah I figured that one out eventually. Well, the uh, the Lockheed Martin C-130H, what a classic aircraft, still in service with uh, many, many air forces around the world, and uh, it came into Australian service in July of uh, 1978, back when I was seven years old, Grant, so it's been it's been around <laughs> a long time because I'm considerably older than that now. Yeah, I was a little older than you when they came in, but uh, yeah, it's uh, done a pretty good course for Australia, uh, definitely got their money's worth out of these puppies, and uh, they've really worked hard for Australia and done sterling service, as they say. Yeah, 34 years of uh, wonderful service to the nation and in fact right up until the week they were retired uh, they were still operating backwards and forwards uh, servicing Australia's uh, forces overseas most notably I guess into the Middle East area of operations the MEO as they know it in the trade uh, you know in concert with the uh, the C-130J fleet and uh, of course uh, now being replaced uh, predominantly I guess by the uh, the C-17 Globemaster. That's right the heavy lift is by the 17s the uh, J's are doing most of the tactical airlift and uh, then for the uh, smaller battlef- battlefield airlift that's where the uh, C-27J Spartan is going to come in in the near future, but uh, we'll have to do a separate episode introducing that one when it comes online, I think. Yeah, that's absolutely right, mate. Now, these aircraft, uh, of course, Australia has operated a fleet of uh, 12 of the H model. Uh, up at the time of retirement, uh, as best I can tell, there was 10 of them still operating. Uh, a couple of airframes uh, had been out of service uh, and in storage since about 2009, according to my information here on adfserials.com.au, Brendan Cowan's wonderful website. It's a very handy website, very good for answering all those questions about uh, what happened to which aircraft when. These aircraft, uh, like all C-130s uh, in Australian service, uh, start with the serial number A9. Alpha 97, and uh, in the case of these aircraft, they were numbered dash 001 through to 012. And uh, with construction numbers for the airplane geeks amongst you, starting at number 4780 and going on. These aircraft were uh, brought in to replace 
the original C-130s flying for the Air Force, they were the C-130As. And at the time they came in, there were C-130As and Es. And uh, then, of course, once the As went, there was Es and Hs. And uh, as the Es sort of uh, went off into history as well, now we're left with uh, Hs and Js. And now nothing but Js. So it's okay to be J, as they say. There you go, base. <laughs> okay to be J. Yes, we heard that quite a bit over the uh, phasing out of the H, didn't we? We certainly did. Now, uh, we were very fortunate to get access uh, to uh, Royal Australian Air Force Base at Richmond, up there uh, northwest of Sydney, back in November uh, for a media day as the uh, the aircraft uh, prepared to do their uh, farewell flight over Sydney. In fact, uh, two aircraft were uh, tasked to undertake these flights. Uh, one aircraft, in fact, aircraft number five, was uh, painted up with some distinctive uh, tail art, which uh, you can see pictures of if you haven't already. Uh, just uh, head on over to the show notes and uh, head over to our Flickr site as well. I took uh, a lot of photos of that one. Uh, that one... Uh, uh, went in the lead uh, while the the other ship, uh, aircraft number eight, followed us around uh, Sydney Harbour uh, while uh, you know a bunch of uh, mad photographers hung out the back of the ramp and uh, took lots of photos. So the aircraft uh, flew over Sydney Harbour the day that uh, I was lucky enough to get a flight on it and uh, spent the rest of that week, in fact, touring around predominantly New South Wales. I think uh, visiting uh, many many regional centres that uh, have uh, had anything at all to do with the C-130H uh, over its uh, time uh, serving Australia. And I tell you what, uh, these aircraft have done so many different uh, things over the time they've been here, I reckon there would be very few parts of Australia that uh, haven't been touched in some way by the C-130H. So uh, coming up in this show, we're going to be talking to uh, Flight Lieutenant Tony Charles. He was the uh, the pilot in charge of the aircraft that uh, I flew in that day as we uh, flew over Sydney Harbour, and uh, he'll talk to us about uh, the flight and uh, a bit about what he does uh, outside of the Air Force. We also catch up with Flight Lieutenant uh, Richard Augie. He uh, took me uh, for a ride in the simulator, and uh, t- tell you what, Grant, even perished the thought, let me have a, uh, a quick uh, steer at the controls. <laughs> steer at the controls? I hear you just totally aced a landing at Queenstown in New Zealand, mate. Oh, jeez, I wouldn't want to uh, brag too much about that, you know. Uh, but now that it's in, it's not going to get edited out, is it? No, that's right. In fact, I may brag a little bit more about that towards the end of the show. <laughs> anyway, Grant, you also catch up with Phil Brown, a former C-130H flight engineer. And of course, it's uh, very important to uh, note here that with the retirement of the H also sees the retirement of the role of flight engineer on the Hercules fleet. So uh, Phil uh, tells Grant all about uh, some of his time uh, working with the Hercules and uh, even on the F-111 fleet before that. And we'll uh, top that first uh, block out talking to squadron leader Rob Sokol, and he was the pilot in charge of Aircraft 11, and I spoke to him the day that he flew it from Richmond on its final flight, in fact, down to uh, Point Cook, where it's been delivered to the Royal Australian Air Force Museum. In the second half of the show, we've got a fantastic interview with uh, retired Air Vice Marshal Greg Evans. Now, I'll tell you what, Grant, uh, there's probably not uh, anyone who's been in the Royal Australian Air Force who uh, would know more than uh, Greg Evans does about the uh, C-130 Hercules in general, not just the H, but uh, many, many other models uh, as well. And boy, does uh, he give us a really passionate uh, and detailed discussion about uh, some, not only some of his exploits in that air- aircraft, but some other interesting thoughts on... Uh, other aircraft that are serving with the uh, the Air Force at the moment. Okay, so uh, as is the case with uh, all these sort of media events, uh, they wouldn't be complete without a press conference, and uh, that press conference was held by Air Commodore Gary Martin. He's the commander of Airlift Group there at uh, RAF Base Richmond, and uh, we'll follow that up with a, uh, a rather interesting uh, recording that I made of the uh, pre-flight safety brief. If you're an airplane geek like Grant and I are, you'll find that very, very interesting because, uh, well, it's a little different to uh, some of the um, flight safety briefings you may have heard when flying with Qantas or uh, Virgin Australia. What, they uh, don't get you to watch the video screen. Well, they do, but uh, there's a lot of uh, interesting things that, uh, well, you have to think about when you're flying on a military uh, cargo aircraft. So uh, that's uh, coming up in the first block. Let's kick it off now with uh, the press conference with Air Commodore Gary Martin. Hi, I'm Air Commodore Gary Martin, and I'm the Commander Airlift Group here at RAF Base Richmond. 
Today we're here for the C-130H Farewell Formation Flypass through Sydney where we're going to be taking the two aircraft that you see behind me uh, we'll be going through Cronulla, Sydney Heads and then around back to RAF Base Richmond in the next 30 minutes, uh, around about 10.30 to 10.45 you should be seeing them in Sydney. What uh, role have these planes played in Australia's military and civilian history? The C-130H has got a very proud record, 34 years of safe operations operating from the late 70s where we actually got a Queensland Tourism Award for Operation Immune when we were taking the Australian population around through to Afghanistan and uh, Iraq. Associated with last year we were operating in Queensland for the uh, Yasi assist and also some of the flood work. We've also been involved with the tsunami assist with Indonesia back in 2004 and a vast amount of exercises offshore with our United States and other compatriots. What are some of the stats you can tell us about these planes? Well, uh, for 34 years, the aircraft has uh, now gone about 50 times around the world in the uh, equivalent transactions. It's carried multiple millions of pounds of cargo and personnel. Most importantly, it's been there for the Australian population in the times when Australia's been had its back against war in a lot of the civil crises around the area. Why are these planes being decommissioned? Whenever we acquire a new asset, they run for a certain life. These particular aircraft were due to be phased out at the end of this year, so this is the actual official marking that we're doing this particular week as we start those activities. Do they get creaky? Do they rust up? What, what goes wrong with them? Why no, do you need to? They look pretty good to us. It's a, it's a very well-nurtured uh, aircraft. Over the 34 years, they go through heavy lots of maintenance to ensure that we have the perfect serviceability that we can get. Unfortunately, technology moves on and uh, as you'll see between these and the latest ones they now become digital fly-by-wire and we move forward into the uh, latest uh, types of aircraft. So these are really a look into our past aren't they? They're a historical piece of machinery. The C-130H is certainly that. It, it has had a lot of uh, different uh, objects uh, attached to it. Electronic warfare, some of the parts inside the cockpit you'll see, the latest updated technology for aviation both for navigation and reporting our positions. So whilst an old aircraft by design, it has been brought up to date as far as we can, up to the 2012 era. So they're too outdated for us, but we're handing some of them over to our neighbours, aren't we, as a, as a gift? Well, actually, this is a transfer. We're working with Indonesia. They're putting in funds, and we're bringing up four of the aircraft into an airworthy sense for them as they initiate with a brand-new C-130 squadron across their side of the world. This will certainly help us with uh, defence around the nation and as they move forward to uh, enhance their fleet, they've got a mixture of older aircraft with the uh, old E models, this would be a great advantage for them. And so the pilots that fly these planes, what will they go on to do? Are they trained for these more updated aircraft or will their positions be made redundant? No, 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 no. there's no redundancy in the defence, so we're flat out with those. Uh, these aircraft, all the crews are already moving on to their new types, various other postings that some of our people are doing into ground areas, but majority are moving on to the C-130J, a couple of them move into the C-17 as well, and one or two into the flying instructor business. You mentioned uh, four of the aircraft going to Indonesia. What will happen to the balance of the fleet? Are they going to be scrapped? Or? Uh, no, the rest of the aircraft are all under disposal actions. So we'll be looking at uh, areas that do want them. They'll be going out to open tender, that and the uh, simulator training device as well. Okay, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. In the event of an emergency, the alarm bells will sound. If the alarm bells sound whilst on the ground, Exit the aircraft via the ramp and door, paratroop doors, 
the crew entrance door or as directed by a crew member. If the alarm bells sound in flight at any stage, take the nearest seat and strap in. Look to the nearest crew member for direction. The Emergency Passenger Oxygen System, EPOS. In the event of a rapid decompression, smoke and fumes, or if emergency oxygen is required, you will need to use the Emergency Passenger Oxygen System. There is an EPOS at each seat location. Under the direction of the loadmaster, reach behind your head, unclip the green bag, break the red tamper seal, tear open the pouch by the yellow tab. The EPOS is sealed within another bag. Along the top of this bag, arrows are marked at the tear-off locations and small V-nicks in the bag allow for separation. Tear in the direction of the arrows at the V-nicks. Remove and unfold the EPOS. Hold the bottom of the oxygen cylinder in one hand and pull the red toggle with the other. This will start the oxygen flow to the bag. Visually confirm separation of the oxygen cylinder clip from the oxygen cylinder. Place hands inside the rubber neck seal. Stretch and place that over your head. Ensure that you create a good seal around your neck and that the seal to the neck is not impeded by any foreign object, such as shirt collar or hair. If at any time the bag collapses or fails to inflate, remove it immediately and replace it with another EPOS or gain a crew member's attention. Be aware that the seal around the neck may generate a degree of heat. This is normal. Monitor other passengers and alert the loadmaster if anyone is in difficulty. Only remove the EPOS under the direction of the loadmaster or if a new one is required. The EPOS should provide oxygen for at least 15 minutes. This should provide sufficient time for the aircrew to resolve the emergency. In the event that the aircraft is required to perform an emergency crash landing, the following brace positions are to be adopted. Primary brace position one buttocks pushed back into the seat, lap belt fully tightened, upper body bent forward over the thighs as far as possible, head tucked into the chest as low as possible, arms around the legs tucked in against the body, legs angled at the knee joints but not under the front bar of the seat, feet placed flat on the floor just ahead of the seat front bar. Alternate brace position two, buttocks pushed back into the seat, lap belt fully tightened, Sit up straight, but lean towards the front of the aircraft. Rest the upper torso and head against whatever they might contact. Head tucked into the chest as low as possible. Arms around the legs, tucked in against the body. Legs angled at the knee joints, but not under the front bar of the seat. Feet placed flat on the floor, just ahead of the seat front bar. After takeoff and at the direction of the loadmaster, you may be free to move around the aircraft. C-130 aircraft have basic toilet facilities at the rear of the aircraft. A curtain is provided for modesty. Air sickness bags are located around the aircraft. Earplugs are available from the air terminal and on board the aircraft. If you experience problems with your ears during ascent or descent, advise the loadmaster. All portable electronic devices must be switched off prior to boarding the aircraft. Mobile phones are prohibited for use at all times. Limited use of portable electronic devices, such as laptops and MP3 players, may be approved by the aircraft captain. The loadmaster will inform passengers when and if these devices are approved for use. All personal electronic devices must be switched off prior to landing. Hand baggage must be in your control at all times. Lying on the floor or on the cargo is not permitted. All rubbish is to be placed in the bags provided or removed from the aircraft. Engines running offload. Some tasking will require passengers to exit the aircraft while all engines are still running. 
engine running offloads, or operational stops, expedite turnarounds. In the event that an engine running offload is required, you are to follow all directions given to you by the loadmaster and or air movement staff. Disembark the aircraft in an expeditious and orderly fashion, ensuring that all loose equipment has been secured. In the event that the aircraft is required to ditch, life preserver yokes are fitted to the aircraft within the passenger seat rigging. Familiarise yourself with their location upon boarding the aircraft. When directed by the loadmaster, place the life preserver yoke over your head with the front label to the front. Place the strap around your waist, fasten and adjust. The primary emergency exits for water will be the three overhead escape hatches. One is located above the flight deck, one midway down the cargo compartment above the emergency escape ladder, and one in the tail of the aircraft. An emergency escape rope will be extended from the exit for guidance. Once outside the aircraft, pull the red tab on the life preserver yoke to inflate. Should the life preserver yoke fail to inflate, there is an oral inflation valve on the left side of the jacket. The life preserver yoke is fitted with a light and a whistle to attract attention. To illuminate the light, pull the toggle rope attached. This will allow salt water to activate the battery. Board a life raft and follow the directions of the air crew. All questions during flight should be directed to the loadmaster. I'm here with Flight Lieutenant Tony Charles. Tony, uh, you took us up in the uh, Hercules today? Yeah, it was great. Tell us about the flight, mate. Yeah, it was fantastic. So I took off out of Richmond, uh, quick look at the city, then down um, up the coast past Bondo Beach, a couple of laps of the harbour and up past Palm Beach and then over to the Blue Mountains for a bit of a bit of a nice scenex with uh, a bunch of photographers on board and uh, it was really great just to fly close together. We don't do it very often except for um, airdrop sort of stuff. Most of the time we're further apart, so it's really nice to get in close and fly uh, some visual form. Uh, Lots of stick and rattles and hands and feet type flying for the guys at the front for the pilots. So. Interesting there. I know you had flap down. It was quite, uh, say, a half-duty configuration most of the time. So uh, trying to keep up with the photo ship, I suppose. Yeah, so uh, to get the ramp open, we're, we're limited by 150 knots. We need the flaps out for that. And it's quite difficult to fly. Lots of turbulence. And the aeroplane's really on the back of the uh, the drag curve, so to speak. So, yeah, it's good fun. And we use that configuration normally in airdrop. So normally uh, we're only there for a short period of time. But today we're there for a good half an hour. So, uh, yeah, I was working hard. Had to hand over at one point. Arms were getting tired. Yeah, it was uh, quite bumpy there, actually. A surprise, the first time I've ridden in a Hercules, and uh, it was quite it surprised me at how bumpy it was. Is that normal for a No, nah, it was a bit of a bumpy day. There's a bit of front coming through, and we're getting wet now with the rain. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's because of the turbulence and a bit of bit of weather around. So just just unsteady sort of uh, airflow there meant we were getting bumped around. So yeah. Yeah, at those particularly those slow speeds or the really top end speeds, we start to get thrown around. Now uh, I know the range here, and we're a little bit short of time, but I just wanted to ask you with the H retiring, uh, where to for you from here? Yeah, well I'm a reservist. I uh, I do other things outside. I'm a house dad a few days a week as well. So. Um, Plenty for me to do in my civilian life, but uh, there's more reserve work here. I'll move across to the J model and doing some instru- sort of instructor pilot type duties there, uh, in the, mostly in the simulator though. So my days of flying, uh, the real Hercules are, are pretty numbered, I'm, I'm afraid to say. The real Hercules. The real Does that Hercules, all go down well when you're compatriots here this year? <laughs> That's right. Well, it's not, nothing against the J. I mean, I meant the sim, you know, rather than uh, yeah. flying a real aeroplane. Well, Tony, it was a real privilege to fly on the aircraft today, and uh, thanks very much for taking us along. Will do. Thanks very much. No all worries, 
Okay, we're here in the uh, C-130 simulator building and I'm here with uh, Flight Lieutenant uh, Rich Shorgie. How are you? I'm good, how are you? Oh, great. Well, I'm great. You've just <laughs> let me fly this simulator and uh, Queenstown as well, so uh, I must tell Owen's up that actually. I think he'll be very impressed. As you can see, there's, um, the Hercules is a really nice aeroplane to fly. It's just it's such it's a beautiful aeroplane to fly and, uh, and even flying it somewhere exotic like Queenstown, it just won't let you down. I, uh, I found in there that you, that you can feel the weight of the controls, but uh, you, like you say, once you spend a few minutes getting it you sort of get a feel for it and apart from me overcorrecting a, a few times <laughs> it was uh, quite a lot of fun it, and it is and it's um you, you do as you said there you do uh, get a feel for the aircraft very very quickly for um for the weight of the controls and the um all the uh the anticipation that's needed and everything like that and as i was saying inside the simulator the weights of the controls make sense for the aircraft in terms of the size of it if the weights of the controls weren't there very easy to overfly, like you're just whacking huge controlling hooks and the thing probably would fall out of the sky. Yeah. Now you're an instructor here? I'm, well I was an instructor over in uh, in Perth, um, I got back here with the intent of being an instructor on the C-130H, but the aircraft got retired before I could get my upgrade. Okay, so, so where to for you? I'm going to the C-27J next right. year, well okay. sorry, to the squadron next year, with the intent of the aircraft turning up in 18 months or two years time. Now that's really interesting because every Avalon I've been to I've seen them roll the baby hook, are you going to learn to do that? I really, really hope that we do do that. Our, um, our herc um, flight manual says aerobatic manoeuvres prohibited and part of the tasking that we're going to be doing next year before the aircraft the C-27 turns up is um, writing the flight manual for the Air Force so I'm hoping if I do anything at 35 Squadron it's banning the phrase aerobatic manoeuvres prohibited being uh, put in there Well it's a 1G manoeuvre isn't it? It is a 1G manoeuvre and the, um, the, the C-130H has a 60 degree angle of bank limit but the, um, the C-27J and I've done my homework on this has no angle of bank limit at all so there's no reason at all do barrel rolls in it in Royal, Air, Royal Australian Air Force colours, and I hope, I hope we get to do it. Can't guarantee anything, but I'd like to get to yeah, do it. Yeah. So we might talk about uh, the transition training for that in a minute, but I'm interested, uh, a pilot coming out of pilot's course and coming on to the C-130, what's the sort of training frame, what sort of time frame would they look at to, to convert onto this air, this aircraft? It's, uh, well, you keep in mind that um, they've already done about 80 months intensive training to get where they are, just to get the wings on the chair. So they've been to Tamworth for about nine months, and they've been to 2FDS for about nine months as well. Turned out of there, they can uh, navigate an aircraft by day or night in any weather, pretty much. So we're not taking someone that's never flown an aircraft before. When they come here to 285 Squadron and learn how to fly the C-130H or the C-130J, they'll get about a three-month conversion course to be turned out as a junior co-pilot who can fly the aircraft anywhere in the world. Uh, there's a ground school component in there, so they'll learn all about the aircraft systems. Not in detail that they could build the aircraft from scratch, but certainly enough to get by and get themselves out of trouble. And then there's a fairly intensive uh, phase of basic handling the aircraft, uh, learning to fly the aircraft by night, fly the aircraft under instruments. Um, emergency handling is a big part of what we do as well. Uh, the other thing that they have to adapt to is up until now they've just been flying simple pilots. So they've been learning to fly by themselves because ultimately out of two FTS we're going to turn out jet pilots but now we're putting them into a multi-crew environment. So they've, now they've got to sit there and learn how to be part of a crew. So operate checklists, operate aircraft systems, follow the direction of aircraft captain, in integrate with navigators and engineers and things like that. Now it's interesting you talk about checklists. Now we were interviewed recently a fighter pilot and he talked about not having checklists so much but having a patter. Yep. Is it similar for military pilots when you're flying these heavy aircraft? It, to a certain extent it is. We do have a checklist that we read from in terms of a, um, a challenge and response checklist like that the airlines use, but um, we have an expanded pattern on what we do. So in a particular checklist item, the challenge would be, you know, airspeed below 168 knots, gear down, gear travel, that sort of thing. We do, there's things not written in the checklist that we do. In terms of emergency stuff, our, what we call our Section 3 boldface actions have to be committed to memory. and We can't pull out a checklist and check for them and then do them. We have to do them straight away verbatim. 
We will then, at the completion of the um, security of the aircraft in terms of emergency, we'll pull out our checklist to make sure we've done everything. Uh, but no, we don't, we don't do it from memory in general. You're obviously operating in far different environments to what uh, you know a, an Emirates pilot, for example, would be operating in. So obviously you've got to have something customised to what you do. Or I guess would you have different checklists for different scenarios? We do. Yeah, we've got a uh, an everyday strat checklist, strategic tasking, which is just moving stuff around the country, around the world. But we also have a tactical checklist if we're doing more tactical stuff. And it's more concerned with um, mainly the main difference there is. In a tactical environment, we're going to throw loads out the back of the aircraft potentially, or we're not going to come down to a nice long 10,000 foot runway, we're going to land on a 3,000 foot dirt runway, all using night vision goggles. Uh, we've also got the aircraft um, self protection self protection kit as well, so the Chaffin flares, you can see on the DSTO website there, so we have to make sure that that's all connected up nicely as well. So we do have a tactical checklist, but the flow is still the same, it still runs exactly the same way as an all strategic checklist, uh, but some of the items are a little bit different. In terms of CRM, we, um, we're fully, the Air Force is fully swept up or fully engaged with CRM as well. Uh, we realise, like the airlines do, that CRM is the, the big change that's happened in the last 20 or 30 years that means that aircraft aren't crashing anymore. Yeah. Uh, and we fully crack this out as well. Even if a guy is a, a junior co-pilot, he could be the guy that speaks up on the crew and saves the entire crew. So we put a lot of uh, training into our CRM as well. Yep. You practice a sterile cockpit, that sort of thing? We do, yeah. Yep. We've got it in our, um, in our sounding instructions that we have a sterile cockpit, so we do a similar sort of thing. You can imagine, though, that... Um, in a threat environment, so if there's uh, surface-to-air missiles and things like that, that uh, if we're approaching a, a hot airfield or a hot drop zone, then um, uh, it's still sterile cockpit because it's still mission essential information, but the chatter in the cockpit might be a bit more than you would get flying to um, JFK or something like that, an A330. Uh, but yes, yeah, sterile cockpit, all that sort of stuff is the sort of thing that we apply as well. Now, I've interviewed tanker pilots before, and I'm always fascinated with uh, CG issues. They're dumping fuel out, I guess, at a rate they can adjust for that gradually. You're dropping a tank out the back. How do you adjust for that? I mean, what does that feel like from the cockpit? It's, it's, uh, we, can, we can drop a platform that weighs 20,000 pounds or so, like 10 tonnes, I think that is roughly. It, um, we rely on the fact that it moves out of the aircraft very quickly. So it's out of the aircraft in about three seconds. From the front, you um, you feel a big change in, uh, in attitude and trim. So you feel, as the, as the platform moves back out of the aircraft, uh, you feel the aircraft start to pitch up. So you have to put in a fairly abrupt and fairly large forward stick. Uh, but then as it goes out, you've got to take that out straight away. So we don't tend to trim the aircraft for that. We just put in force, hold the force, and then bring it out. It's um, It works out really well, unless the load gets stuck. Well, then that's going to be my next question. What happens if a tank gets stuck? <laughs> you're in a bit of a water hurt. The, um, the, the trim of the aircraft is usually strong enough to be able to trim the, air, to trim the load out. The only problem we have is the extraction system relies on a small drogue chute sucking out a very, very large chute, and the large chute sucks the, um, the platform out. Some of our very, very large parachutes are so big that they provide so much drag that our engines are only sufficient to take us to the scene of the crash. So right. <laughs> what will happen then is the load masters will learn their Victoria Crosses, they'll jump up on top of the load, cut the parachute away, um, and then hopefully not get sucked out or um, you know anything like that. It hasn't happened yet, and we've operated the aircraft for the last 50 years, or thereabouts, since the A-Model started in 58, so not quite 50 years, but no, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. There's a lot of um, procedures in place to make sure that it doesn't happen. But it's, in terms of it all smoke, flying smoothly, that's ah, nice, no problems at all. It's, um, it can be done, you just anticipate that it works out quite nicely. Now we were talking before about the uh, C-27J, the Spartan, and uh, we're all excited here from an aviation mm-hmm. standpoint that they're coming in. Um, you said you're going over to uh, transition into those, so uh, what's involved in that? It's, uh, it's, there's pretty much two phases to it. First of all is next year the squadron stands up, 35 squadron, here in Richmond. Um, 
the CO, uh, Brad Clark, he's an ex C-130H navigator, so he's fully swept up on uh, tactical operations. Uh, and he's got a really good plan for getting um, the aircraft, or getting the squadron ready for when the aircraft arrive in about 18 months or two years time. We have to pretty much, well we don't have to, we could just cut and paste all of the C-130H operations and just do a word search for C-130H and replace this button <laughs> if we're being lazy. Which we oh, that'd be too easy. It would be too easy and it'd be lazy. And also, um, you know, in the C-130H checklist where you can shut down the outboard engines to taxi in on two engines, shutting down two engines on the C-27 is going to work too well for us. So <laughs> things like that are going to get... <laughs> What we, what we are going to do though is um, we're going to take all the documentation that's come from Alenia, all the documentation that's come from the US Air Force, maybe even the Italian Air Force, have a look at it all, see what's going to be right for us, and then write our own stuff. So we're going to write our own flight manual, we're going to write, um, to a certain extent, our own performance manual as well. Um, a lot of that performance stuff will just be pretty much cutting and pasting and putting it out to our own RAFIs sort of stuff. We're going to write all our standing instructions for operating the aircraft as well, so everything from uh, the daily routine of the squadron, what time we start work to what time we go home is in the standing instruction, down to um, you know, what the crew composition is, for instance, for a standing crew and everything like that. We're going to sit down as a group over the next 12 months and figure it all out for ourselves so that when the aircraft turn up, um, it's ready to go. We can uh, get towards some sort of initial operating capability and then move towards a full operating capability in the shortest amount of time. Yeah, well, we certainly do need a battlefield airlifter like that, don't we? Sort of lacking yeah. it now the boo's gone. Yeah. It is, and it's, um, there's, there's, because the Army's using the CH 47 Chinooks in Afghanistan, and we're using C 17s and C 130s over there as well. But there's a big gap in, um, in the amount of load that a C 47 can take to what a C 17 can take, sort of thing. And sometimes there'll be a load that won't even fill a C 130, but we're still going to use a C 134, whereas the C 27 will be able to take that load far more economic. Yeah. Some people are saying C 27. It's no replacement for the C-130H, and they are correct. It is no replacement for the C-130H, but that's not what it's designed for. Yeah, it's not meant to be. It's not meant to be, and if people keep that in mind, then it's a beautiful aircraft. It's really, really good. Well, it should be up and floating yet, but I imagine it's going to be really good. In terms of as a replacement for the, um, the DH-4, it's brilliant. I think it's really good. You can't do the really, really short New Guinea Highland stuff, Yeah. but it can do, you know, it can fly it uh, up in the flight levels. It's pressurised. It can fly at 300 knots, which the Caribbean couldn't do. So, yeah, there's a couple of things it can't do. The there's a couple of things that it can't do that the Caribbean could do, a lot of things that it can do that the Caribbean could never do. So as a Caribbean replacement, I think it's a fantastic airplane. And I believe there's quite a similarity between the flight deck on the C-27J to the C-130J. It is, yeah. It's, um, they've taken all the avionics, pretty much just mashed them into the C-27 cockpit. The engines are pretty much exactly the same as well. Um, I was reading about an Air National Guard unit that was operating in um, the C-27 in Afghanistan, they had a bit of a, um, an agreement with a sister squadron that was flying C-130Js. There's a lot of common parts that they were sharing between the aircraft. So there should be, should be, if we do it right, there should be a lot of savings to the taxpayer in terms of by having to buy a whole complete stock for a C-130H and a whole complete stock for a C-130J and then a whole separate stock for a C-27. There just should be some crossover of parts in there. So we yeah. will save some money there, which would be good. Absolutely. And I guess uh, this wonderful simulator will be taken away and replaced by a C-27 simulator, presumably. I presume as well, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it shouldn't be too hard. Like a simulator is a simulator. It's just the insides there. Uh, and ideally, the initial training will be done over in America, I think. I'm not sure. I think it'll be done over there. But ideally, we'd like to get a simulator here in Australia so that we can train crews from scratch over here. Well, you certainly trained me today, Rich, and I really <laughs> no, appreciate it, mate. Uh, what do we do? Really three, four left? Well, three, four right at Sydney. Three, four right at Sydney and uh, two, three Queenstown. Bounced it a few times at Sydney, but uh, almost, well, I'll say I nailed it because no one no one saw it. So no. I'll say I nailed Queenstown. That's good. And I'll pay you 20 later to say that. <laughs> Rich, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate no it. No worries at all. Thank you. Phil Brown, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. Thank you. Now, mate, uh, you're 
now with CAE, you've been yes. a flight engineer on the H models. You've had quite a bit of a career in the RAF. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't start as air crew, so no. Let's roll right back to the start. Okay. Well, what got you into flying? I got into flying uh, through uh, my father, ex Air Force, uh, ex World War Two, and then private flying post World War Two. He uh, still needed to get the fix, and uh, that's what kicked me off. I'm the youngest in my family, and uh, I was his. Uh, I was the little boy that tagged around all the airfields with him. Every school holidays, we were at an airfield somewhere doing something, either light aircraft or gliding, something like that. Uh, so I had no real choice but to uh, join the Air Force. Joined as a technician to start with, as an engine fitter, 1980. Started off on F-111s. Uh, spent six years on F-111s and then uh, came to uh, Richmond in 1986. And uh, with the intention of becoming a C-130 flight engineer, on F-111s you, at the time in the 80s, you pretty much had no hope of getting uh, M&A crew, as it's called, for a flight engineer because we're not commissioned pretty much had no chance of getting a remaster out of, out of Ambly. So, plus we were, the stuff I was doing at Ambly uh, on F-111 was a bit specialised from a training point of view, so I didn't want to let people go. Uh, Richmond at the time, sadly, was a bit of a, uh, bit of a, a black hole. There were a lot of, uh, in the mid-80s, a lot of not very happy people here, uh, working very hard, which we didn't know anything about on F-111s. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, weekends, all that type of stuff. So uh, when I applied to come to Richmond so that I could try and gain some experience multi-engine, the whole intention being to try and be more competitive when I applied for aircrew. My wife and I were posted here very quickly and uh, 86 was the start of the love affair with the C-130. You came down to, to Richmond to get in with the C-130, but mm-hmm. you already had some flight experience previously? Uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was, as I said, dragged around a lot of airfields by my yeah. father. I had my first flight when I was five years old. Uh, went solo when I was 16 uh, and continued to fly privately. In fact, I continued to pri- fly privately pretty much till I remastered to military aircrew. Uh, once I took it up as a, um, as a full-time gig, as a professional sort of job, I started to, uh, in the early part of the days with the flying, with military flying, head down, bum up in the books. If you weren't, uh, and as a junior guy, you're always flying, they, you know, you're just flying your bum off the whole time just to try and gain experience and uh, if you weren't flying you were in the books uh, so I it wasn't a sacrifice at all it was just that I, I ran out of time to fly for fun I was having too much fun at work and the trade off for that was it meant when I was home I was with the family as opposed to changing flying suits and going flying privately so uh, that's what I, I've done since uh, I changed over to air crew in 1989 and was posted to 36 squadron on C-130H so, with your private flying, what kind of aircraft were you flying back then? Uh, it was mainly, I was into uh, sport gliding, so mainly gliding. Yeah. Uh, did a little bit of, of powered flying, but uh, mostly gliding. As my father got older, he concentrated more and more on gliding, and gliding was his whole thing, and owned his own motor glider as well, so that was sort of like the mostly powered stuff I was doing was flying motor gliders, and just purely for enjoyment. So did that experience help you when you got to the point of you came here to Richmond, you were starting to get hands-on engineering experience mm-hmm. with the C-130, how did you go about transitioning and remustering as flight crew and did the private flying help you with that? At the time, back in the, uh, back in the mid to late 80s, there was almost like a set ladder that you went through, a set process that you followed to make sure you had a successful application. But certainly uh, being able to uh, show the face, because you're out here on the flight line, 
show the face to the important people in the squadron, the people that you knew you might bump into at an interview board or something like that. You showed the face, you, you talked aircraft with them, you, you sort of made sure that they were aware that you knew something about aviation and that you just weren't fixing the aeroplane. And that certainly helped through the interview process, the interview board, and, and even through the training, having a, a solid background knowledge in aviation from an early age certainly helped, I feel, anyway, it made life a lot easier for me. So you're working here on the engines, you're coming up to speed on the um, mm-hmm. turboprops and things like yep. that. How long did it take you from when you got here to when you were <laughs> able to actually get through all the, I, uh, all the hoops? Ca- coming from F-111s, I thought I'd turn up at Richmond and they'd go, wow, you're from F-111s and uh, you must be good. Uh, <laughs> and, and I just, you know, it would hardly be a challenge. Three years later, I felt I knew just enough to throw my hat in the ring and give it a go. At the time, most people were sort of running at, uh, not all, but most people were running at at least two applications, two attempts through the interview process. I was fortunate enough to uh, go through on the first pass. Timing-wise, it was myself and a, and a close work friend of mine had a look at what the posting plots were doing, had a look at uh, what squadrons were, were recruiting and training and how their cycles were running. And we both desperately wanted to be on C-130H and uh, both of us got that slot. We only had a course of, uh, course of three. One, one candidate wasn't successful, but the other two of us got through. You, you do that process, so there's a, there was obviously the, the standard sort of defence recruiting, lots of paperwork, psych testing, etc., etc. And then interview process, you go through the interview board, recommendation, then uh, M and crew initial training. Uh, so that, that just gives everybody a baseline. It didn't matter whether you were going to be uh, from a technical standpoint you know, a flight engineer or whether you're going to be uh, you might have been a cook who's remastering to a loadmaster, or you might be a kid that's just come from uni and you're going to be an AA in the back of a P3 it gave everybody the same baseline level of knowledge from an aviation standpoint just mainly all in general terms but you know this is how a jet engine works this is how a propeller works this is how an airfoil works this is how radios work that type of thing. So the theory side of Yeah, you, you go and do all that. And when I did it, it was done uh, down in Adelaide at 292 Squadron. From there, then, uh, while we were down there at the time, uh, we had a big cadre of guys too. Um, postings came out. Uh, there were postings to both Herc Squadrons, posting to P3 and posting to Caribou all at the same time. Uh, as I said, I, I was fortunate enough to score C-130H. Back up here to Richmond, ComServ and things like that. And then uh, into the conversion course here, which was... Uh, pretty much three months, about three months of ground school. For our course, it was about two and a bit months of simulator training, then about another two or three months of flight training. I think I graduated um, maybe August or something like that of 1990. Now, this is all theory, books, and practical on the aircraft, but you, uh, though you were air crew, it was air crew, but not, you were never given um, flying instruction or things like that. Oh, no, that, that, the simulator. The simulator phase and the flying phase, you were doing on real tasks. But were you actually hands on the controls? Yes. Okay. You were you were in the seat doing the work. So that they would actually train you to the pilot level. No, no, not pilot, so for flight engineer level. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I was just clarifying because I've heard some people talking about um, doing aircraft, even though as a flight engineer, they were being also learning a bit about actually flying the aircraft. We as well. we did certainly not officially. The initial part of the simulator phase um, was conducted just purely with all flight engineers. So you would have the students in the simulator and you would have uh, a number of flight engineer instructors with you uh, and someone driving the simulator as well. 
Uh, and the reason why they did that was um, so you'd have the engineer student for the day would be in the fly engineer seat and uh, that would be his ride. He knew what the ride entailed, he'd been pre-briefed etc, he'd studied up for it, that was his ride. You might have, for example, you might have done that ride yourself the day before but you need to sit in the co-pilot seat to fill the seat and so you'd run the checklist. The idea back then too was, and it's worked right the way through what I'll refer to as the classic Herc, uh, is that the flight engineer is the only person on the aeroplane that knows everybody's checklist. He can actually step into pretty much anybody's seat and do the job. He's not a pilot, there's no denying that, but he can select all the switches as required for a checklist. He can do every, everything that needs to be done. And that, that came from the simulator phase simply by not having enough people to fill the seats because the pilots are down in the squadron flying the missions. There was no need in the early part where, you know, where it might take the student, you know, this sort of like a bit of a joke, but it might take him five minutes to get his seat correct. And, and figure out how to put his seatbelt on because he's brand new at it. Well, there's no point wasting the time of very experienced and expensive pilots to sit there waiting for him to do that. So the pilots don't get introduced in the sim phase. They don't get introduced to much later on in the phase. So by default, you actually learn houses get bigger, houses get smaller. And then uh, over, over many years of sitting in the centre seat, especially in the training world, uh, I could pretty much whack a CureFi circuit right now and teach someone how to fly a circuit without a problem in a C-130. So what is the role of the flight engineer in the C-130 and how do you integrate with the pilot, yep. co-pilot and the loadmaster? In the H model, the aeroplane from the manufacturer is certified uh, two pilot, is certified for a three-man crew, two pilots and a flight engineer. Um, you don't have to fly loadmaster, you don't have to fly navigator. Obviously when you're flying the aircraft operational, you need to fly with those crew members to do the job. So for the flight engineer, his main job is to sit back and configure the aircraft from a systems point of view to get the aircraft to operate, and then uh, you do the pre-flight before that, so you pre-flight the aircraft. Then uh, once you've got the aircraft operating, you're then just sitting monitoring. The flight engineer does what a computer does in a modern Airbus or a modern Boeing aircraft. You sit back, you say nothing until something needs to be said, and you're thinking ahead of where the aircraft is and what the pilot is about to do with it and you make sure the systems are ready for what he's about to do with it. A lot of the time if, you, if you're flying strategically you are, you're sitting, uh, watching, monitoring, you're doing uh, performance logs uh, every hour um, and just keeping an eye on the aeroplane, keeping it on the rails. The flight manual talks about things like uh, you know, monitoring the fuel panel and keeping the aeroplane within limits and monitoring for overheat conditions and unusual blah, blah, blah. You, you live, eat, breathe the aeroplane. You know it, you smell it, you hear it. And thankfully, the C-130s, it talks to you. It's a very forgiving aeroplane. It lets you know when it's not happy, uh, which is a good thing. You just have to be able to speak its language. And that doesn't always happen with more modern aeroplanes. So that's what the engineer does generally. In the tactical role for the Royal Australian Air Force, the flight engineer has uh, traditionally run all the tactical checklists. Once the aircraft is airborne from its home plate, effectively, you switch from a uh, strategic checklist to a tactical checklist, and the engineer runs that checklist. And everybody else, we in this aeroplane, it's a challenge response style of checklist, uh, where normally for strategic work, the co-pilot will read the checklist and everybody else will respond to that. And in the tactical environment, the flight engineer runs the checklist. And again, that's simply because the engineer, again, is the only person that knows exactly what everybody else's checklist involves. And in the tactical environment, especially when you're doing airdrop, there's a lot of involvement in the loadmaster down the back preparing the load to leave the aircraft in flight. That can take a lot of time. And 
time compresses quite quickly when you're in the front of the aeroplane. So the engineer actually knows what the load master is doing right now. Even though you can't see him, you know that at this part of the checklist he's undoing these straps or the load is he's doing this with the safety lines or he's positioning himself here. And so you run the checklist at a pace to make sure that when you get to the to calling that part of the checklist complete, you know that he's ready to call it complete with you. Uh, so in the tactical world, that's what the flight engineer does. You're a good interface between the load master and the pilot as well. You're a good interface between maintenance and the pilot. You're the go-no-go gauge in the aeroplane. You're the guy that can say, yeah, the aeroplane is degraded to this point, but we can still achieve the mission outcomes because I can, I've got to work around here. Whereas in a more modern aeroplane where you know, the organisation accepts the cost that if this particular type of thing were to happen, you refer to a quick reference handbook like a QRH, for example, and it might say, turn that off and land the aeroplane. In the H, because of your technical background, you can make an honest opinion. You try and give the captain uh, options. You never try and steer him for your preferred option, which is always go where the best hotel is. Um, <laughs> you give him the safest options you can to the best of your ability. You, you know, people make mistakes at times and you might not think of everything, but you, know, you make sure that the, you, know, you stick within the limits, you stick to the flight manual. You're also, for the RAF, you are, our flight engineers are maintenance authorised as well. So we're authorised to conduct maintenance on the aircraft as well. So the classic C-130 would often, you could go away for a month, Lone Ranger, no maintenance support, and do everything yourself as the flight engineer. You do all the admin, you do all the through-flight servicings, before flights, after flights, refuels, reloxes, uh, anything that needs to be done. You carried a limited amount of spares, you carried a toolkit on the aircraft, and you knew where your boundaries were and what your authorisations were as well. There's obviously some things that break on the aeroplane, you've got no choice but to phone home. But otherwise, you were, you were given a fair bit of latitude, which today, with the newer aircraft that the Air Force has got, that's beyond the scope of pilots because they're non-technical aircrew, whereas we were technical aircrew. So you're going places carrying maintenance support with you. Yeah, I've seen that with the, the USAF when they had one of their C-17s in and it blew a pack and they had to wait for a part to come in on another aircraft. Yeah, don't get me wrong, just because the flight engineer can do maintenance on a H-model doesn't mean you don't need to get rescued at times. There's sometimes where... You know, you don't have the wherewithal to be able to fix it yourself. I've fixed an aircraft in the UK, for example, where I've gone to the, I've gone down to Lynham, which is the, was the Herc base there in the UK. I'd phoned the WOE beforehand, asked him if he had the part. He said he did. I brought my broken part down, gave it to him. Once I had his new part, I phoned home to Australia, told them what the mod state was. They agreed that it was equivalent to what we were using. Took the part back to my aircraft at Bryce Norton, fitted it, kept flying on the mission. Whereas with certain aeroplanes now, you can't do that. You'd be phoning home for a rescue and off to the other side of the world. So how long were you a flight engineer? At the moment, I can still say that I am. So. <laughs> Good call. So, active, uh, active RAF flight engineer. Oh, active RAF. I, I discharged from the Air Force uh, January 2006. So I flew uh, flew constantly as a flight engineer from, uh, I re- when did I remaster? 89. So I was flying in 1990 through to 2006 as military. I joined CAE uh, the day after I left Air Force, uh, became an instructor here. I was already, I had been an instructor here when 285 Squadron was first stood up in the early 2000s. Joined CAE uh, initially as a uh, classroom and simulator instructor to supplement the Air Force instructors. That very quickly turned into um, a flying role as well. Um, so then since uh, 2006 till now, I've been uh, actively flying as a civilian contracted instructor with military students. You weren't going out on any active missions? It was no, all, uh... it was all, uh, 
the uh, our role here, and there are a number of us here that are instructors. Our role here is to fly training sorties for the training squadron. That's the scope of our flying. Uh, we are allowed to fly uh, some 37 squadron sorties uh, that are deemed to be training for 37 squadron. But there's no um, nothing involving bullets or sharp implements. So uh, no uh, operational sorties. That said, as a contractor under training uh, with students, I've flown uh, as far east as numerous times to New Zealand on trainers, as far west as Diego Garcia to rescue another aircraft. We were on a trainer in Western Australia. We were the nearest asset. We went to Diego Garcia to do the rescue. And similarly, um, whilst being up north in Queensland on a trainer, went out into the Solomons and rescued five guys who'd been missing at sea for two days. You know, so flew to Townsville, picked up a search and rescue kit and blasted out there because we're all qualified to do it. Mm-hmm. So off we went. But that, that's obviously not our role as civil instructor. We wouldn't launch from home plate with the intent to go do that type of mission. Now, when you were active RAF, what kind of missions were you involved in at that time? Pretty much everything that the H-Model was involved in through the 90s and early 1000s, I took part in. I suppose my first real taste of serious work was Cambodia. Um, and at the time, the squadron did Cambodia, Rwanda. We were, I was online at the squadron during Gulf War One. The H-Models didn't deploy. We were on standby, but we, we didn't deploy. So we were ready to go, but didn't for whatever reason. So then through, to, uh, through the Timors and the Solomons, uh, all the local area type stuff, and then uh, leading up into uh, the MIA rotations. Uh, I didn't personally fly a MIA rotation. I was here, I was one officer in charge here at the time. Which was the MIA The Middle East. Uh, so, uh, MIA, yeah. Yeah, I, so I didn't get to do the initial rotations there because I was one officer in charge of training here at the time. Yeah, so been to a few places. I've flown the aeroplane around the world a couple of times. It's been good fun. It's <laughs> been excellent. It's a good job. One of the things that's happening now is, of course, the J model doesn't have an engineer. Correct. None of the other aircraft, except the P3 Orion mm-hmm. in the RAF, have engineers. Yep. So what's happening to the engineers from the H's? Are they being retrained? Or? The guys were given a number of options. Our junior guys, which we had just graduated, a few junior guys, were the first guys. They were basically the first cab off the rank. They got the options. And it's only fair that that happens. They're at the start of their career. And Air Force had just invested a lot of money in them to get them to make them air crew. Um, whereas uh, yeah, the majority of the, the rest of us are a little bit senior in our years and probably nearing the end of our productive uh, works sort of life so they were given the option one of those guys took p3 as an option but it, it's not just a matter of uh, p3s having sufficient room to take all the hurt guys because they don't they're obviously trained up to their manning levels as required now and and they've also got a training plan of recruiting people as well so you just can't all up stumps and move to Embra. and not everyone wants to go to adelaide either one of the guys uh took that option which was great for him uh our other junior guy uh who had come from uh, as a maintainer on C-17s, was given the scope to re-roll to Loadmaster on C-17, so he took that. A number of the other guys have taken the opportunity to re-roll to Air Refueling Officer on the A330 or the KC-30, which effectively means after they do that tour, they will then be Loadmasters again. The flight engineers that didn't take the opportunity to go to P3s all have to be re-rolled in the near future. So like out to about two years' time, there shouldn't be any more uh, flight engineers uh, in ground jobs, for example. And a number of guys want to stay in location. A number of guys have probably got the opportunity to be uh, C-130J loadmasters, which is a good a good gain for the organisation because you've got a guy with a lot of C-130 corporate knowledge still being a part of the C-130 world. Uh, so some of the guys will be into, uh, into ops positions, etc., like in ground jobs and things like that, uh, and they'll see those tours out, and then depending on where they're at in their careers, they may either then re-roll to, uh, like, maybe take a commission, engineering officer, 
OPSO, things like that, or they may re-roll to Loadmaster as the posting cycles occur. But the majority of the guys, uh, pretty much the, the more junior guys, all got a, another flying tour uh, re-rolled onto a different aircraft as a Loadmaster, for example, or a refueling officer, which is good for them. And for yourself, where, where's your career going? For me, sadly, uh, due to budget cuts, my position has now evaporated. Uh, and it's not just to do with the end of the C-130H. We knew that would happen. You, know, you, you couldn't expect uh, the taxpayer to fund a position that's not required anymore. The training squadron here had um, a plan to re-roll me as a C-130J instructor because I'm already used here within the unit by the pilot instructors for technical background knowledge. So if they're not sure about a system in the J model, they'll come and talk to me. If I don't know the answer, I'll find it out for them and then I'll give them the answer from an aircrew point of view, uh, which is often what they're after. They're, they can sit down across the table from a technician and he speaks technical talk to them and they don't understand it because they're pilots at the end of the day. So I can pitch it to them in pilot speak. Uh, so that's what I, that's the role I've been doing. And that's what uh, the CEO of the unit, he wanted me to develop more. I've sort of, the last 10 years or so here, um, I've sort of had the role of, of not of course mum, but I've looked after the co-pilots as they've come through onto the aeroplane and uh, made sure that they got the right sort of information and development at the right time. So he wanted me to, to try and do that role. Sadly, with the latest uh, budget cuts, um, ALG's uh, been forced to tighten the belt a bit more and uh, a couple of our civilian positions have been lost. So that's the end of the flying game for me and the end of the instructor game for me as well, unfortunately. But within CAE, luckily, there's still a lot of work to be done involved with ALG, involved with C-130. So I'll be used within the company as a subject matter expert for our courseware development people. So I get to stay here, thankfully. And hopefully if things turn around from a budgeting point of view and uh, someone sees the light, I might be back in the simulator or the classroom in the not-too-distant future, hopefully. Cool. Is there anything else you'd like to say on uh, the <laughs> flight engineer and the RAF progression and what it, we've just gone through? Uh, it's just probably... Um, it's you know, A lot of people talking about the age of the aeroplane and about how it's sad times, and it is. It's end of an era. It's appropriate... I think the tail art saying end of an era is appropriate. It's the last of the classic style of aircraft for the Air Force, for Airlift Group in particular. Uh, it's the last platform within Airlift Group that has a crew position for a flight engineer and a navigator. So it is a sad time. Uh, we're losing that skill set. Uh, and once it's gone, it's gone forever. You lose the corporate knowledge and you also start to lose the history a little bit as well because people drift away and the lessons learnt in the past have to be relearned sadly and that's not necessarily a good thing in aviation lessons can be expensive as i said there it's not just people like me that are losing the opportunity to have this type of great job you know there are there are maintainers that work for Qantas defense services over here that are that are going to lose their job when the h goes simply because we don't have that platform back you know whether whether people like qds you know get work when c27 arrives we'll wait and see but that's still many years away so so yeah it's a it's a sad time it's the end of an era uh, looking forward to the hangar bash tomorrow night. A lot of old people coming out of the woodwork. There'll be a lot of old faces there, and a lot of I'm sure there'll be a lot of lot of lies told with the addition of alcohol. <laughs> looking forward to it. Phil, thanks very much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Okay, we're here at uh, Point Cook, and I'm with uh, the squadron leader Rob Sokol. And Rob, you flew the uh, the last C-130H flight down here to Point Cook today. Yeah, this this morning we took the uh, aircraft 11 um, from Richmond uh, to Point Cook to deliver it to the museum. 
it's quite a blustery day here today, so I imagine you had a good tailwind for the last flight. And uh, going on my experience, actually, the other week uh, going over Sydney, I imagine it was a bumpy ride. It was actually quite smooth up top. <laughs> this uh, this wind is only low level and isolated pretty much to Melbourne, so Richmond was a nice calm morning. It was pretty it was a beautiful day for departure, actually. Now, how long have you been uh, flying the Hercules? Uh, my love affair with the H model started in uh, 1992, so it's been about 20 years uh, associated with the C-130 uh, itself, but C-130H as well in particular. Yeah, and you spend predominantly most of, well, up until now, most of your time with that aircraft? Yes. And uh, you were saying here, being at Point Cook, obviously you started your uh, flying career here and uh, with the CT4s back when they did that sort of thing here? Yeah, absolutely. It was um, here that I did my CT4 training at one F- then 1FTS. And uh, prior to that, actually down the road at Lavin and I did gliding. I live not far from here. So very convenient. Yeah. An interesting story you're telling us walking over here as to why they flew this aircraft down here. I believe originally they were going to put it on the back of a truck somehow and bring it down the Hume and uh, might have been a little bit prohibitively expensive. Yeah, the, uh, they got the quote for the delivery by truck and it was um, far and above what they expected. So this aeroplane had two more serviceable flying days left and it expires on Monday. And um, they decided that the best thing they could do is um, do a few minor maintenance things to it and uh, get it so that we could fly it down and be the best way to get it to the museum. And I noticed the cargo area is quite laden up there. What did you bring down with you? Yeah, the, uh, because of the uh, H models come to an end, all the training materials, training equipment, there's engine cutaways, propeller, um, training boards, anything they could get their hands on for the museum. Um, the, we loaded in the rear and brought it down with us. Um, the intention is this aircraft will go undercover in 2016 and all there will be a display with it and in the future the P3 will be next to it as well. It's interesting when we covered the F-111s, there wasn't a great degree of sadness. Like everybody seemed to be looking forward to going to the next platform and I, I, I kind of sense that that's... I mean, there's still a lot of C-130s around, so I guess that's not that much sadness, it seems to me, that the H is going, there's still the Js. Is, is that the sense you get? Oh, I guess the sadness is... is uh, the way this aircraft is operated to the uh, J model, uh, there's flight engineers and navigators on board, which the J model doesn't have. Um, this aircraft has been retired uh, at its top. It's it's not a, um, it, it didn't require much. It had another 20 years in it. It was more a financial decision, we believe anyway. And, um, you know, it's going to, it, some of its roles are going to be replaced by the C-27J. Mm. Um, so the sadness is that this aeroplane is not, time expired it's um it's its position in the inventory has been decided to be finished when it's actually on top of its game you know it's performing its role dutifully and well right up to the end up until recently are these aircraft still been operational still going overseas and up into the middle east era of operations that sort of absolutely. stuff absolutely yeah yep. they're, they're fully capable they'll, they'll not hold back on anything so it, the entire gamut of what the aircraft can do they'll do until the to the very end and so where to for you from here now the h is gone are you uh, going to the j is it okay not, to be j it's actually a part-time job for me i'm a i'm an a380 driver so. oh there you go <laughs> so so i've uh, i was i left the air force full-time eight and a half years ago and have been fortunate enough to continue part-time um uh, instructing, I'm, I'm an instructor, so I've had my fingers in the pie with the C-130H for, for quite a while there. That's actually an interesting point, actually. The last pilot, uh, the pilot that took us up the day we went over Sydney was a reservist. Is that, that a big thing? I didn't realise that that was such a big yeah, component. Yeah, quite, quite a few of my colleagues that I work with uh, still have attachments to the military, whether it be the Air Force, Navy or Army. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's plenty of opportunity for people on the outside to get involved in, in the reserve forces. Well, Rob, thanks for bringing it down and thanks for doing a wonderful pass over the base before you did the final landing and uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. You're welcome. Thank you very much. One 
something different to talk about on Monday? Get yourself a Jet Ride gift pack and tear through the skies at 900 k's with Australia's ultimate jet fighter experience. Be top gun for the day. Go to jetride.com.au slash PCDU or in Australia call 1300 554 876. Hi, this is Max Flight. Besides producing the Airplane Geeks podcast, I run the 30,000 Feet Aviation Directory. If you have a look at the Aviation Podcast page, you'll find links to literally dozens of aviation podcasts. Go have a look and listen to a few. Then come back here and get the real deal at Plane Crazy Down Under. Ever dreamt of flying in a warbird? Why not strap yourself in for pure excitement and let a supercharged radial engine take you up to speeds of 200 knots? Dare to push the boundaries as you experience up to 6.5 G, fully aerobatic or simply take in the spectacular scenery of Western Port Bay, French and Phillip Islands with 360 degree views. Come and join us at Adventure Wings in Turidan and take flight in our Nanchang CJ6A. Plane Crazy Down Under listeners get the 15 minute flight for only $250. That's a saving of $30. Call us on 0418 525 658 or visit our website adventurewings.com.au. Flying every weekend and other times by appointment. Adventurewings. Leave the ordinary behind. I'm James Williams from Podcasters Emporium and you're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, now proudly part of the Lifestyle Pod Network. Greg Evans, welcome to the show and thanks very much for joining us. Grant Steve, very nice to be here, thank you. Greg, uh, you spent a lot of time in the Royal Australian Air Force and of course are retired at the rank of Air Vice Marshal. Can you tell us uh, a bit of your history within the Royal Australian Air Force before we get on to talking about the Herx in particular? Well, it goes back quite a long way. In, in, the, in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, in, in a completely different universe, when you could do this, my dad used to take me up to RAF Base Richmond and uh, at my request, leave me standing at the big cyclone fence that ran along parallel to the runway uh, and go off and do things. And I would stand there riveted at that fence, hoping against hope, usually it was a weekend, to see a C-130 start up and taxi out and take off or come back and land. And that was a long, long time ago and I was a, a little kid. And I guess that was back in the days when you could leave a little kid standing at the fence <laughs> <laughs> and, and expect to find him there when you came back. So I do remember that there were X's and Y's and uh, they, they were E models with the four-bladed propellers and uh, A models with three-bladed propellers. And um, I, was, uh, I was very deeply interested in these things and, and would watch the crews preparing them and getting in them and going flying in them. And I regarded it as just about the coolest thing in the world. I, I thought in, in about 1968 or 9 that the coolest aircraft in the entire world was the um, Lancaster. And uh, it very quickly became apparent to me that a C-130 was as close as the modern Air Force came to still having Lancasters. So <laughs> I, I kind of was a bit of a fan of the C-130 from childhood. And then uh, life intervened and I went and did a lot of things, including becoming a school teacher. And I was taking flying lessons and spending something like 75% of my weekly wage on flying lessons. <laughs> and in great exasperation, my brand new wife, Suzanne, one day said, look, um, we can't afford groceries anymore. Why don't you join the Air Force or something? <laughs> and it, it had actually never occurred to me that, um, that I could do that. I'd always been very busy with other things and, and I, I had just never thought to do it. So I 
I waltzed into recruiting in Newcastle and um, I remember meeting Corporal Bill McCluskey who was the recruiting corporal there and he was a very astute chap and uh, he sort of sized me up, looked me up and down and said, are you good at science and maths? And I said, well, I teach science and maths at high school. And he said, well, that covers that then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how fast can you run a mile and a half? And uh, had a bit of a chat to me and literally six weeks after walking into the recruiting office in Newcastle, I was on a bus with a bunch of other long-haired uh, uh, recruits uh, heading off to the airport to go to Point Cook oh, wow. and uh, took the direct entry route into the Air Force and 28 fantastic years just uh, having a wonderful time. I, I had a very unusually long period on the C-130. I, I arrived there in 83, uh, pilot's course in 82, arrived on the Herc in 83 and uh, it was at a time of absolutely enormous airline recruiting from the Royal Australian Air Force. Virtually everybody I knew that was ahead of me in the squadrons was leaving to go to the airlines. Very lucrative work in, in Cafe, Qantas, uh, ANSET in those days, of course. Um, yep. It just seemed to be the dumb thing to do. And what that meant was there was a bit of a shortage of pilots. And I ended up flying continuously on C-130s in, in the RAF and then in the US Air Force on exchange from um, late 83 until the end of uh, 1993. So I had 10 straight years flying them and then came back as a CO later on. So it was just a marvellous uh, time to be on them. The H's when I arrived were almost brand new. They were four, four years old. They were just utterly reliable, just a wonderful aircraft to serve on and just a great thing to fly. So from being a kid at the fence, I actually ended up flying them. Did you have to request to go there or was just by pure luck that you ended up on the Herc? Oh, no, no, I, I, uh, I wanted to go there uh, all along. Uh, and uh, I vividly recall one day at number one flying training school at Point Cook, my instructor was a dyed-in-the-wool fast jet pilot named uh, one flight lieutenant Jeff Shepard, later to become the chief of the Air Force. <laughs> and um, he, uh, it had clearly never occurred to him that any student would want to fly anything but Mirages or F-111s. And it would appear that one day I was dragging the parrot in a little bit low and uh, flying low approaches, and he rounded on me in the cockpit and said, what do you think you're doing? You can't land a Mirage like that. He said, what do you want to go and fly? And I said, C-130, sir. And he, he just looked at me with his mouth open. He just could not believe it. <laughs> it's interesting you say that, Greg, because in the course of our time doing this podcast, we've met a lot of fast jet pilots. And, you know, had I ever been able to join the Air Force, I, I tell this story a lot to our audience that uh, I would have liked nothing better than to fly something big and something heavy like a Hercules. And uh, all these fast jet guys look at me like I'm mad. Yes, they, they just don't get it, I'm afraid. But, I mean, I, I do understand the attraction of fast jets. They're glorious things. And I've, I've been lucky to have um, probably eight or ten rides in fast jets. And it is an exhilarating thing. But here's the enormous attraction for me. It's flying with a sizable crew. So operating an aircraft which has a crew working as, as almost part of the mechanism to make it all work. And, and the biggest thing of all... If you fly C-130s or P-3 Orions, you are out doing real work all the time. Uh, whereas it, it's always seemed to me, and uh, you know I could be wrong, but it's always seemed to me that the life of a fast jet pilot is endless practice but never actually doing it. Now, thank God for that because uh, yeah. that means there's no wars on. But life as a C-130 driver uh, all through the period when I did it and, and, and always was you'd go to work Monday morning and you just never knew where you would end up between then and Friday afternoon. <laughs> There'd be a search and rescue, a medical evacuation, a disaster relief in New Guinea, 
there would be tactical exercise training with the with the army from uh, usually three battalion in those days dropping paratroopers there'd be heavy equipment drops there'd be scheduled services there'd be some prize bull to take to Beijing there'd be uh, you you know a, a bulldozer would have to be delivered to Norfolk Island and you'd have to stand around there scratching your head with how to get the damn thing in and and not go through the bottom of the floor while we were flying it was just such a an exhilarating varied life we just we just did everything everywhere and it seemed to me that whatever happened anywhere in the world, if there was trouble, uh, we would be one of the first people lobbing in and the herd would be first in and last out. And it, it just was a privilege to live uh, such a, I, I guess, such a useful life. We were working all the time and it was real work and it was, it was priceless to the country and I, I reckon that fleet of aircraft paid for itself almost annually. Well, I've heard that said uh, often, uh, that expression, in fact, that it paid for itself annually. And I, I know the Herc has done a lot of interesting things here. I guess when you talk about disaster relief and, and other things that perhaps aren't uh, military-specific, if you like, in terms of conflict and all that sort of stuff, the Herc's done a lot of that stuff. I can remember them using Hercules when the uh, the airline pilot strike was on back in the late uh, 1980s, for example. Yes, uh, and um, every every cyclone in the southwest Pacific, it's usually a Royal Australian Air Force C-130 and often the H model that would be the first medical aid into uh, you know some little Pacific island that had been flattened by a by a great big uh, cyclone, um, disaster relief all over the place. I can remember uh, as Commander Airlift Group in the um, uh, in the early 2000s dispatching a C-130 to Iran after an earthquake. Yeah, uh, you know it's just. Um, a remarkably useful aircraft, a very important combat aircraft, of course, as was demonstrated in the second half of their life in the Middle East, but but also just an astonishingly useful utility aircraft that, that uh, are just priceless for the country. The things we did were just almost without number. You know, um, Cyclone Tracy in uh, Darwin, all of the all of the evacuations that took place after that, all of the scarifying stories about the people who flew the first A models in, dodging debris on the runway and uh, so forth. It's just one of those aircraft that is just a really useful thing and it's a great thing to be involved and get good at flying it and, and be operating it and, and operating it with a with a crew is just that much better you know a, a team of five of your best mates heading off to do real work it, it was serious stuff and it was just exhilarating i just loved every minute of it can you tell us, uh, perhaps from the standpoint of a pilot, I was very fortunate recently at the base to uh, have a go in the simulator and, uh, you know, they asked me what flight experience I've had and I said, well, you know, I've never flown anything much bigger than a, a Beechcraft Duchess, a twin engine. And they said, you'll be surprised how, how quickly you'll pick it up. And, uh, you know, for the 10 or 15 minutes I was in there, I, I found it a little heavy on the controls, I guess. But, I mean, from your perspective, what, what was it like to fly all those years? Is it an easy aircraft um, to fly? I always found the Herc a very tractable aeroplane. It's got a remarkable speed range um, at, at me. Medium weights, you'd, you'd often be, uh, you'd often have a threshold speed down around 100 and 110 knots, uh, and it would easily howl along at 300 knots indicated at low level, and 300 true at high level. Um, we'd, we'd usually fly it at low level around 240 to 260. So a very tractable thing, and early generation power boosted control. So if uh, if you talk to a caribou pilot, um, <laughs> the Herc is a fingertip light, um, great big power steering assisted Cadillac. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you, 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 caribou pilots develop muscles on their muscles. You know, they, yeah, it's, uh, pretty heavy uh, guys, aren't they? Big, oh yeah, big they're, shoulders. They're, uh, <laughs> it takes 
quite considerable strength to fly a caribou because they're, they're natural, ordinary, uh, just um, pilot-operated controls. But the C-130 had lovely boosted controls and um, I always found it a very light thing to fly personally. Uh, but it did, it did get very uh, heavy and tiring if you lost an engine or engines. There was, uh, it was designed to require 180 pounds of pedal force in the, in, in the event of uh, a double engine failure and you really needed to apply that. And that's okay for a little while, but um, any longer than about 15 minutes and it, it got very, very tiring. Uh, but you, you could usually trim it out once you'd climbed away and cleaned the aircraft up. But it, I guess in its, it, with all the engines running and with all the systems working well, it was a, an extremely straightforward thing. The old QFIs used to always tell us, look, it's a great big Cessna 172 when all the motors are running. And when they start to fail, you'd better know your systems. And it was a, an aircraft of the 50s in that sense. You, you just had to be very, very conscious and, uh, and know instantly which systems ran off each, which engines and uh, what it meant when you lost one uh, in terms of electrical power generation and hydraulic pressure output. But uh, it wasn't diabolical. Uh, it just was an aircraft where you had to know your systems. And, of course, we, we flew with that most magnificent branch of, uh, of uh, the aviators, that's the flight engineer. So you had a, an absolute systems expert right at your elbow with all of the overhead panel at his, at his beck and call and, uh, and outstanding advice. And the flight engineers really were one of the key elements that made the H model as special as it was. They could fix the thing when we were away and many's the time when we've, we've broken somewhere and the flight engineer would uh, be able to fix it. Uh, those days are all long gone now, of course. And uh, their, their advice and expertise in supporting the pilots in operating the aircraft was just superb. And, yeah. and I, I still nurse a st sneaking suspicion that um, that configuration for heavy aircraft is a very sensible and uh, capable one. And I, I uh, never really was thoroughly convinced about two-pilot cockpits for heavy aircraft. But, you know, you'd have to say that the J-Model and airline experience probably proved me wrong, but call me old-fashioned. <laughs> <laughs> well, so long as the computers work, it's all good, but... Uh, yes, yes, yeah. that's right. And, uh, you know, we're seeing lots of airline accidents now that are uh, mode confusion accidents where yep. the pilots think they've told it to do one thing and it's actually doing something else. It's doing precisely what they told it to do, but there's a slight misunderstanding in their minds about what they've told it to do and you know I, I just loved the simple straightforward direct nature of the H model the flight control system was very simple and straightforward the systems were complex but you were um, very expertly supported by a flight engineer and it was just a delight to fly in terms of handling um, you could uh, you could plant the Herc within a foot or so of where you wanted to land it and you could do it consistently. Inertia was your great friend once you had it heading towards something it took a lot to disturb it so you could really <laughs> park it precisely on a on a uh, touchdown zone um, you could fly it very very precisely in the airdrop modes uh, at very low speed and uh, and really uh, get the thing exactly where the navigator needed it to be to get the drop accurately done and it was surprisingly nimble and um, and uh, agile at low level and in formation. You could really slot a Herc into formation beautifully and just hang there. It was was um, really lovely to fly in formation. You'd uh, you didn't want to get a closure break going that you uh, hadn't anticipated because it was uh, could be a little hard to 
slow down, but um, there was a fair bit of drag, and if you applied all of the normal cautions, it was a delightful thing to fly in formation and, and just a wonderful aircraft to fly low level. We could pump them down the Avon Valley. We could take them uh, down the Gross Valley and uh, most of the other famous uh, tight, low-level routes, and it really is quite amazing to see one. It's like watching a charging elephant going through a turnstile. You know, you just, <laughs> It's really surprising that you've seen it do what it did, but you just fly it like an aeroplane and around she goes, you know, they go around the corner. It's a marvellous thing. When you're out there doing these sort of high-performance manoeuvres, I'm just curious, uh, you're talking about, um, you know, flying asymmetric engines out, that sort of stuff. Let's say you had an outboard engine out and you were you, were, you had to do an airdrop or something. Does that place extra restrictions on how you can operate the aircraft? No, it's quite a robust thing. Uh, the loss of any one engine would really let you finish your military mission in, in most circumstances. Now, in peacetime, of course, we'd, uh, we'd knock it off and come back, but now that we have level five simulators, they practice quite extreme uh, combat damage and still getting the mission flown, you know. Um, the Herc's a very tractable thing. It's uh, quite uh, possible and it's practised often in the simulator. And we used to we used to actually practise in the aircraft itself doing three-engine takeoffs. Uh, it's in the flight manual. It's something that you can do and it's, um, it's, it's certainly something you wouldn't want to... You know, if you're having one of those days where you drop your coffee cup and uh, you're not going well, you wouldn't want to do it on one of those days. Um, but with a current crew who's practised it recently in the simulator, you can take one out with a feathered outboard engine and take off with the engine feathered at uh, light and moderate weights and it's really not that bad if you know if you understand the aerodynamics and understand what uh, the flight manual says you can do it quite easily and the other great thing you can do in the Herc is a windmill taxi start you can actually build down the runway on three engines and um, use the airflow to start uh, one whose starter motors failed and then abort the takeoff and at the end of the abort you end up with uh, four engines running under your hand they really thought the thing through very cleverly, and it's a, it's a remarkably robust, tractable thing. We saw quite a few examples of aircraft getting mutilated quite badly in, in Iraq in particular in the recent conflict. Um, I walked up and inspected one on the ramp in um, Baghdad, but it had a shoulder launch missile hit one of the inboard engines right in the oil cooler. And yeah. um, it, it had actually homed on the oil cooler. They were very lucky because it never detonated. But it, it's uh, just the impact itself and the rocket motor did a great deal of damage to the aircraft. And um, it uh, it allowed them to, it, they still feathered the propeller and secured the engine and got the fire out and recovered it. You know, So it's, it's a combat aircraft. It's... Um, it's not infinitely robust. No aircraft is, but uh, and we did every. every we, we've lost quite a few in the Middle East. Uh, touch wood, and I'm knocking on my head as I say this. Not the Royal Australian Air Force yet, although they're still in Afghanistan. But um, they're a they're a tough, robust, competent military airlifter, uh, and um, they can do the mission. And you can shoot them full of holes, and they'll still do it. Um, oh, I remember the uh, invasion of Panama, which happened while I was on exchange. Every aircraft in the C-130 flight that went over Rio Hato was peppered with uh, 23 millimeter, which is uh, um, 50 cal, basically. And uh, there were wounded paratroopers aboard. There were no air crew were wounded, but uh, they were tending to wounded paratroopers, and they had fuel streaming out of fuel tanks. And uh, every one of those aircraft brought them home. You know, yeah, it's interesting. You you talk about the U.S. Air Force ones. My first exposure to to really getting up close to a Herc was uh, getting a a very personal tour of the uh, ramp at Little Rock Air Force Base back in 1989, I guess it was. Right. And uh, we we're walking down the uh, we we're walking up the ramp, in fact, of uh, one of these Hercules, and there's all these little patch marks in the ramp. And yeah. I, I just happened to, to mention that to the uh, the uh, gentleman that was taking us through. He said, oh, yes, that's because these aircraft are ex-Vietnam era and those are all bullet holes that have been patched up. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, they, they are very... 
It's a very resistant airframe to uh, small arms fire, and um, uh, particularly when uh, explosive suppressant foam is fitted to the fuel tanks, uh, it's quite a difficult aircraft to uh, knock down. Uh, and the Argentinians demonstrated that with uh, in the Falklands War. They had uh, we had Harriers shoot down C-130s from Argentina on several occasions, and they were very difficult to knock down. And uh, it really is remarkable how what you can do. Uh, you know, you, if you if you're opposed by uh, enemy air out there, it doesn't mean you just give up. We we used to do a lot of fighter evasion training, and it can be quite a difficult thing to to deal with, particularly if they're down in their element at low level in significant terrain. Um, there are there are difficult rhinoceros of a thing to deal with, and uh, um, <laughs> fighter pilots treat it with a fair bit of respect. I always wanted a mid upper gunner and a tail gunner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would look pretty good on a transport. Particularly a mid-upper. I, I wanted to be able to look up behind me and see that couple going around like in 12 o'clock high, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always thought that would, have, that would have given the bastard something to think about. <laughs> <laughs> would have been worth to offload, offload half a tonne just to carry that, right? Yes, yes, it would have been, absolutely. It's only cargo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So quite clearly, you've had a big love affair with the H. You've been involved in it in quite a while. How do you find the J model is compared to the H? How do you find it in terms of capability, performance, um, battlefield operations, all that kind of stuff? Firstly, it, it's an enormously competent aeroplane. It's extremely powerful. It produces um, significantly more thrust than the old power plant combination. goes like a scalded cat, particularly um, climb. It's a wonderful short field performer, um, both in terms of getting off the ground and in terms of pulling up. Um, my personal, and, I, and these are my personal views, so, but I'm happy to give them to you. My personal view is that the, the engine uh, is a little too highly strung for that op- application. I don't think it's tolerant of dust. Uh, as, as much as the old 256 is. To, to some extent, I think what Lockheed have done is, is taken a magnificent Massey Ferguson tractor and, and fitted a, v, a flat 12 Ferrari motor to it, <laughs> creating the fastest tractor in Texas, but one which can't be um, easily driven in a, in a dirt field. Um, Very delicate. I mean. Now, I overstate the case to make the point. Um, it's, it's a more delicate aircraft. Um, so I think what Lockheed have achieved is higher performance at the expense of some level of robustness. Uh, And I think it's also a more difficult aircraft to operate in the really high-end combat military roles that uh, we employ in support of particularly units like the SAS. Uh, where where you're using night vision goggles and all the capabilities of the aircraft, including electronic warfare systems, to get very difficult, uh, highly opposed missions done. Now, having said that, um, the J model is developing all the time, as are the crews in their use of it. Uh, and I think the delta there is probably now quite small. Um, but uh, I don't think the J is capable yet of doing all of the high-end roles that the H model does. But... Uh, as my J model buds always tell me when we're drinking beer on this topic, which is a hot topic between H model <laughs> and J model crews, um, and we outnumber them because there were five of us, there's only three of them in each crew, so yeah. um, the, their point, uh, they make an extremely valid point that the nature of the current round of uh, operations has changed and we are not finding a need for that high-end special operations type work at the moment and um, and in fact uh, most air forces have, have given up practicing it because they don't have time they're too busy supporting troops in contact in Afghanistan and the J model can certainly do all of that in in terms of the software situation 
I find myself a little critical of Lockheed in some respects in that I think they were too ambitious with the software load in the C-130J. I think, uh, I think the software is more complex than it needs to be. Uh, I think more effort should have been put into making the software more operator friendly. It's pretty complex to learn how to use it. But again, I've never been qualified on the J and my J model friends tell me once you've done the courses and learned how to operate it, it's fine. But it still always struck me as being a bit more complicated than it needed to be. And uh, I think to some extent the software geeks have been let get out of control a little bit. And um, because it was possible to have a certain function uh, in the software there, it was it was put there. You know, uh, yeah. things are a bit like that. I, yes. <laughs> I, just, uh, I just had a bit of a sense that there should have been some grizzled old blue-nosed colonel who'd uh, flown in Vietnam and Grenada and Panama and, and uh, Iraq and Afghanistan saying, yeah, but what do you want that? Now, that's not a serious criticism of the aircraft, and I think as the US Air Force goes on developing further blocks of the of the software, that criticism, if you like, is being corrected. Um, but I, I guess the other thing I'd say is that software costs money, and the J is a software-driven aircraft, and if you're going to have a software-driven aircraft, you're going to have significant software maintenance costs. Yes. Um, but that's... Uh, that's you know offset by a range of other costs that the J has eliminated. So I guess it's all swings and roundabouts. You should uh, you should be aware too that I firmly believe that the Royal Australian Air Force should still operate Mark 8 Spitfires. <laughs> well, I don't think well we're airplane geeks, so we we we'd agree with that. Yeah, Just I'd... because they're beautiful. Yeah, you know, that was the best market Spitfire, and and oh F eighty sixes with sliding canopies too. Yes. So yes. you know. <laughs> <laughs> Time moves on, and we do things in new ways, and uh, uh, it's uh, it's a very interesting hot topic. Um, but the the J model, I've got to take my hat off to it. It's uh, it's fast. It climbs like a homesick angel. It's a very very competent aeroplane, and they're out there doing the job. They're um, yep. they're lobbing into uh, into Afghanistan at the moment, and they're doing the job, doing it well too. As I hear quite often around uh, the community these days, it's okay to be J. I heard that said a lot the day I was up in <laughs> Richmond. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of similar lines that we can't use in on public radio. <laughs> no, I guess not. I guess there's, not. Uh, there's been significant rivalry. Let me tell you. <laughs> oh, fair. Well, speaking of aircraft with the designation J, of course, uh, we're looking at the arrival of the C27. Uh, what's your opinion of that aircraft, the Spartan? Oh, look, I think it'll be a good thing for us. Um, it, it gets touted sometimes as the Caribou replacement, but the Caribou is a bit like the DC3. You can't replace the Caribou yeah. because uh, it just had such extraordinary soft field performance you could land it on a grassy uh, paddock with on sand and it'd happily land taxi around and you know, take yeah. off again it, just nothing can do that not even helicopters yeah well, with the right um, wind it was a helicopter yeah <laughs> it came it's just, down just a remarkable old thing so uh, i think the c27 would be a good thing i i remember um being involved in discussion about this at one point and i i was of the personal view that additional C-130Js might have been a better buy, but uh, I remember being shown data which showed how often we fly C-130s underutilised. In other words, with two or three pallets or 20 or 30 passengers. Um, And the reason we do that is because they're crucial people who need to get to something very important, and that's, that's the load. And there were some pretty persuasive figures of the economics of of doing that sort of load near full capacity with two engines instead of doing it at, at one third or half capacity with four, and um, 
I guess uh, no pilot should ever uh, accept that they're an accountant, and I'm not. But uh, I, I think the operating economies of the C-27J will be very used to us, very useful to us. I, I'd have liked to have seen a larger fleet board, um, but what pilot wouldn't like to see a larger <laughs> fleet board? Uh, you know, well, yeah. we can always buy another tranche of them later, I guess. Um, but it'll be very interesting to see if the C-27 does what I personally believe is the most important thing that it must do, and that's re-establish Australian Defence Force uh, presence in the southwest Pacific and in New Guinea. That's what we've lost with the distraction of the C-130 force being so heavily committed to the Middle East, and uh, it's what uh, is in, a, in what the strategists used to call our area of prime strategic interest, and we need to go back and re-establish that, and I think the C-27 will be a pretty good aircraft for the job. It won't be able to do everything the Caribou can do, but of course it can do a lot more than the Caribou could. Yep. So I, I, I'm, uh, I'm sort of reserving judgment, but um, I, I think it'll be a pretty useful device, and I would not be at all surprised if some future government doesn't buy another tranche of them. Well, we've certainly uh, seen that with, uh, with the Hornets and the, uh, the exactly, C-17s. Yes, yeah. I was just about to say exactly that. And um, buying um, tranches of a given type uh, gives you the wonderful opportunity late in their life to retire them in tranches or replace them in yep. tranches as well. So you don't get a fleet of 12 coming up to a hard maintenance limit because that just has dollar signs in neon lights all over it. Um, yeah, if you, and reduce if you capacity. buy you know, a tranche of eight and then t eight years later another tranche of eight, you get a great deal of, of graceful flexibility with retirement and or replacement options later on. Well, as we've seen with the H. Uh, absolutely, yep. yeah. Yep. Yep. It's, uh, it's a very... Um, uh, it's been a very sudden withdrawal and, a, and a, it would have been nice to have, uh, you know, a fleet of four, three years later another fleet of four, three years later another fleet, and then you could roll them over. This is how airlines do it. If you yep. talk to a, uh, any accountant of an, uh, anyone operating heavy aircraft, uh, if you told Qantas, look, you, we're going to buy a fleet of A380s all on the same day <laughs> and they'll all retire in 15 years on the same day, the accountants would just look at you as if you were insane. And the ops people. Uh, well, that's right, exactly. And yet that tends to be the way that we're forced by the military, the Australia's acquisition system, to do it. It, it tends to be big projects. You know, mm. it's got to be first and second pass through the process and, and, and we end up doing it in this, uh, what to my eye looks like an uneconomic way. I, I think a, another tranche of uh, similar block C-27Js and perhaps another tranche of C-130Js might allow us to de-link um, hard retirement dates from the entire fleet and, and really create flexibility and savings late in the life of the type. The P-8 might well be in the same boat. I think the, uh, the first buy of P-8, I'll be very surprised if I'm not looking on from a nursing home uh, sometime in about 15 years at further purchases of P-8. Uh, I think it'll be a very long-lived program and I don't think eight of them will be enough for us. Well, Depending how the world goes, you know, peace might break out all over and brotherly love might become the norm. <laughs> <laughs> we could only oh, yeah, hope that. I'm right. Just a, I'm just a pessimistic old bugger. <laughs> no, we call that real-world cynicism. Thank you very yes, much. <laughs> yes, I, I think, um, you know, one thing you can say for sure, all of the strategic thinkers, and, and that includes me, will have missed what is really going to happen in the next 15 years. If you could go back to the year 2000 and ask what everybody thought was going to happen, nobody would have predicted invasions of Iraq and stuck in Afghanistan forever and all of the things that have happened. Yep. Strategic surprise is a guaranteed certainty. And to get back to our topic, you'll always need competent, robust military airlift. And you need it to be flexible. And um, 
that's uh, that's what the 730 has done for us all these years. I wonder if you could uh, take us through some of the interesting uh, perhaps performance uh, factors. Um, I'm interested in things like basic empty weight and uh, takeoff rolls at max weight, all that sort of stuff. I, I always find it interesting just how much weight these aircraft can carry and uh, despite that, how quickly they get in the air. Yeah, well, it's it's very interesting to compare the A model and H model figures. The the A model had a maximum gross weight of 124,000 pounds uh, and that was a medium weight for the H. So we, our max all up was 155,000 pounds and we could overload them to 175 and wow. quite commonly did. Um, and when you've got a, a basic operating rate around 80, um, they, they sort of grew to about 80 as we added stuff to them over their life. That is a lot of useful cargo and fuel. And it was virtually never that I saw a, um, uh, a 5,000 foot marker go past and I wasn't well and truly airborne. Right. So, you know, even at heavy weights in the tropics, the, the, the Herx accelerating and getting off the ground was one thing it did very, very well. The minimum peacetime airfield length we use is 3,000 feet uh, and that's really usable up to sort of middle weights, up to around 125,000 pounds. So into a very short dirt strip in the middle of nowhere in northern Australia, you can really take some useful load over a useful distance. Um, call it uh, 1,500 miles and, uh, you know, a couple of sizable trucks or a decent load of troops. So it's a it's a remarkably useful aircraft, and that's exactly what Lockheed designed it for in 1954. Much to Kelly Johnson's disgust, he hated the Herc. He uh, he told uh, he told the CEO, if you put this thing into production, you'll never sell it. It's pig dog ugly, and it and it'll be a flop. It'll bankrupt the company, and stormed out in disgust. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice to know he could be wrong on some things. Well, he, he, he usually knew what he was talking about, but it's certainly no SR-71, is it? But no. um, for its function, they jacked up a US rail boxcar and drew an aeroplane around it. And uh, for the job it had to do, it was just exactly right. Did you ever get an opportunity to fly the E-model? I did. I flew E-models on exchange in the USAF, and then I was CO-37 for the last period as the E-models retired, so I got quite a bit of E-model time. Very, very similar to the H in systems terms, but with the earlier Dash 7 uh, version of the 256 engine, and they were... Um, uh, significantly less powerful. They would uh, uh, just had a lower turbine temperature available, so you got less torque out of it. Right. And uh, you were you were very much performance managing in an E model and milking the aircraft. When in an H model, you just pushed the throttles forward and went where you wanted to go. It was uh, okay. a marked difference. I was very fond of the E model though because of their build quality. Um, the, the the legend goes among C-130 crews that if you go up and have a look at an A model, they were built by the very same craftsmen who built B-29s in the latter stages of World War II, and everything about them is just exquisite. They're just beautifully made. The E models were very well built too in the in the middle 60s, but not as good as an A model. The H's were put together very very robustly, but they were rough. They they had rough edges and. Um, it just wasn't as nicely done, and the J models were rougher again. I think it's uh, I think it's just production costs needing to be driven down, and everybody uh, insisting on low cost. But it's very interesting to to uh, see how the how the metalwork changed over time. But I was very fond of the E model, and everybody who flew them was too. They they were just a, a noticeably less muscular aeroplane. It's still a very good thing. Are you familiar with the uh, Kiwi H models? I've heard rumour that some people refer to them as a uh, Super E. Super. That's right. They're they're um, they're they're effectively an E model with uh, Dash 15 engines, uh, but uh, retaining the old ground turbine compressor instead of the auxiliary power unit. And because the E model had a cleaner airframe, the, G the the APU had great big scoop and intakes and things, and it was a lot draggier. They're they're very slick, very fast, 
Um, I was a passionate advocate when the J-Model project was in its infancy for remanufacturing and re-engineering our E-models uh, and re-winging them. Um, but that option uh, didn't uh, didn't survive very long. But it, I, I always thought that uh, if you put them down the line again and uh, remanufactured them thoroughly and did all of the structural work that the, the great advantage of the C-130 is we know exactly where they crack. There is just so much structural expertise and experience worldwide yep. with C-130s. We know exactly where they uh, stress, where they get stress corrosion cracking, and, and where they crack. So you can go through and um, replace all of that struct those structural elements and uh, give them new wings, and they'd have had a new lease of life. But uh, that uh, that idea didn't get up. Our acquisition system uh, couldn't really cope with that idea. And yet we're going down the uh, Chinook F model. There's CH47F, which is uh, effectively a remanufactured D, I believe. Yes, they are. That's right. Uh, But in defence of that project, it was a remanufactured D as part of a similar US Army program. So we were able to, um, I I think, join into that program. I think that was what worried the DMO about the E-model program. We'd have had to go to a private contractor to get that E-model remanufacturing work done. Someone like Marshalls of Cambridge, perhaps, or... uh, a firm like that, and they were they were just nervous about the technical risk and um, and schedule and, and financial risk. So they decided on a new aircraft, and I can understand their thinking. But um, they were they were beautifully built those A models. They were a lovely old thing. Now, Greg, we touched there on your USAF time. We've talked about Little Rock Air Force Base. Um, let's talk about going into the base. You go through the guardhouse, of course. They've got a huge C-130 as a static display. As soon as you go in, you go down past the BX, past that RB-57B, and then there's this massive flight line chock full of Hercules. Um, it seems like hundreds of them. I think there's usually about 50 or so on the base there at Little Rock. Yeah, the, the, the standard um, fleet size was 54 when I was there, but it was if they had any exercises running, the guard and reserve units from elsewhere down in the south used to come in, and it was quite common to have over 100 C-130s just on the ramp at Little Rock. It really was quite an astonishing thing, and, and of course that's the training base for c 130s for the US military. So uh, every instructor pilot, every student C-130 pilot goes through Little Rock to do all of their training. So the throughput back in the days when the US military operated 1500 C-130s was just extraordinary. It was it was an enormous industrial process uh, in the late 80s when I went through it and very, very effective, just wonderful stuff. And that was my first exposure in 88, 89 to um, well-executed level D or level 5 flight simulation. Uh, and uh, I became a pretty passionate believer in the importance and relevance of simulation. They were doing it very, very well back then and still are. And Little Rock is now the site of the of the central US military schoolhouse for the J model. It's, it's the exemplary way to train people onto the J model. And I think we've still got a way to go until we uh, achieve um, the same level of expertise. They underestimated, I think, uh, just how important synthetic training is in a digital aircraft, in a, in a computer-driven aircraft. Uh, and we've got some catching up to do yet, I think. The, uh, the, actually, the first time I ever flew anything was uh, the of any kind was actually the simulator at Little Rock Air Force Base on the same day. So. Yes, I've, I've uh, got a fair bit of time in there being tortured by the instructor. <laughs> <laughs> While I was being turned into an instructor pilot, being taught all of the appalling things that young Hercules pilots could do to you. <laughs> yeah, I went to uh, flight school just up the highway there at Searcy. And, uh, oh, yes. Yep, one yes. of the one of the things you had to uh, really keep an eye out for when you when I was flying my little uh, red and white Cessna 172 around was these columns of C-130s everywhere going around northern uh, Arkansas, so yeah, <laughs> central. Yeah, Arkansas. I, I remember leading a 34 ship one day, Jeez. and uh, I, I, 
we always, uh, we'd go on exchange and every exchange officer I've ever spoken to would go over and think, dear, these Americans are rule bound. They've got a rule for everything. You've got to do it this way and you've got to do it that way. Whereas we tend to be very flexible. And halfway through the tour, we all have an epiphany. And for me, it came one very, very dark night when I was tasked to lead a 18 ship of C-130s to um, Roosevelt Roads, which is down in um, in the chain of islands that runs down to Cuba there, down in uh, Puerto Rico. And uh, you, you kind of, in the US military system, you get what's called flight orders, and they're a detailed description of exactly what you are to do. And they really are orders, and um, you go out and do exactly as you're told. And so off we went with 18 C-130s following me, and we'd been given a rejoin point at which more C-130s joined onto the back of my formation. And then behind us again, a whole lot of C-141s out of, I think, out of Charleston in South Carolina joined on again behind that. And this enormous airdrop of equipment and personnel went ahead into um, a great big uh, disused airfield, I think on, I think it was on Puerto Rico by memory. And we thought of, I was in the middle of the night doing all of this and we we had these three formations rejoining on the station keeping equipment, completely uh, silent communications. There were absolutely no radio transmissions at all. And the second group of C-130s came out of Germany and the 141s came out of another base. And we'd never even spoken with each other. And because their procedures are so tight and um, foolproof and well-written, all of this enormous armada just seamlessly, silently, in the middle of the night, joined up, dropped all of this stuff, and then split off again back to their bases. And I realised, I think there might be a reason why they <laughs> do it this way. <laughs> the amount of combat power they can assemble is just extraordinary, and it requires very tight procedural standardisation. Um, yeah. And I found out some weeks later from my good friend Aldo Castro, who was the Chief of Standardisation and Evaluation at Pope Air Force Base, that I was actually leading a practice mission for the invasion of uh, Panama. <laughs> uh, but I had absolutely no idea their operational security was perfect. And uh, Aldo Castro told me, we figured if the Australian exchange pilot could do it and, uh, and it all worked, it was idiot-proof. <laughs> <laughs> oh, charming, charming. <laughs> thanks, thanks very much, Al. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so much better now. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm still in touch with him all these years later. He's a terrific fella. He was actually the, one of the chief planners for the whole thing, you know, going into Rio Harta. <laughs> and uh, sadly, they wouldn't let me play in that. Australia wasn't invading Panama, so I was sent home on two weeks' leave. Oh, no. I remember being very upset about that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course, there was yeah. a lot of strategic operations that used to run out of Arkansas back in that time, wasn't there? Because up to the north uh, northeast there, there was Eker Air Force Base, and that was uh, full of B-52s. Yes, indeed. Indeed. And uh, I remember a good friend of mine uh, had been the co-pilot on a C-130, which uh, inadvertently was landed at Eker gear up one oh, night. No. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, causing great distress among the B-52 guys because, of course, if they'd been alerted during all of this fiasco, they would have failed their operational readiness inspection and, and to have a grubby C-130 crew come and park its gear up on their runway was just absolutely appalling to them. <laughs> it took him a long time to live that down, poor fella. I'll bet. <laughs> Looking back more locally, uh, Greg, I, I guess uh, here in Australia during operations you would have done some really interesting things. Tsunami relief comes to mind and I believe you had a uh, rather interesting time in Cambodia some years back with the Hercules. 
Yes, I, I did. And in fact, I was on the other end of things in Cambodia. I was uh, sent with a team of army fellows into Phnom Penh uh, when things were looking a little bit troubled in 1997 to review the embassy's evacuation plan for Australian nationals. And um, the very first evening we were there, uh, in fact, uh, Mr Hun Sen launched a coup. And uh, rather than review the plan, we actually put it straight into practice. So straight to I was actually on I was actually on the ground end as the C-130s came and rescued hundreds and hundreds of Australians. So I didn't actually get to fly the aeroplanes. I was um, I was doing the ground end of it. But the last uh, mission that was flown uh, that evening, um, there'd been a lot of delays during the day and serious problems. And we ended up with uh, Flight Lieutenant Dave Steele had to uh, fly the last aircraft in in a torrential tropical downpour in complete darkness with no runway lights on the field at all. There was, wasn't even any power at the airfield on night vision goggles and uh, and take the last 80 or so evacuees out. And we were in very, very serious trouble on the ground if he hadn't got in and got us out. We were being sized up by the local uh, bandits and um, various elements of, uh, of the militias uh, who, who had heard that Australia, rich Australians were being taken out on C-130s and taking all their gold with them, that sort of message yeah. got around. So we were in very deep trouble and um, I I have never heard a sound as beautiful as the sound of his aircraft being pulled into reverse pitch as he touched down on the runway. Yeah. We, we couldn't hear anything because of the storm and um, the first thing we heard was when he pulled it into reverse pitch because he uh, he was um, coming in without... Uh, without talking on the radio too much and it was just a lovely, lovely sound and this beautiful aircraft loomed up out of the dark all glistening with rain and pirouetted ground and backed its tail up and all these Australians jumped in it and off they went. Now, uh, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, you'd been commander of the airlift group. Uh, now, that was an over and above being the CO of 37 Squadron, wasn't it? Yes, that was some years later. Yes, I'd been away and done a number of other jobs and uh, came back in 2002 and was uh, was the commander from 2002 to 2004 and then I went to Baghdad. I was the Australian National Commander in Baghdad. I commanded all of Australia's military forces in the Middle East. That's a bit of a departure from flying Hercules. Yes, yes. Oh, well, I'd uh, I'd been well prepared for it. The the Hercules education is a very broad education. You develop a very good understanding of the Australian Army and how it works and in fact, all the elements of the ADF, and it's a it's a wonderful, broad, all-embracing education. So um, I felt I'd been prepared for that job all of my working life up to that point, and and uh, was was um, one of the great highlights of my time. I was there in 2004-5 when the um, IED bombing campaign really kicked off in a big way, and it was a very eventful period. I was very, very lucky. I was um, I had a, a lot of a uh, lot of diggers who worked for me wounded, but I was extremely lucky not to have any killed. There were some very close calls. It was very interesting and um, and exciting. It took a lot out of me though, but as all of those things do. Yeah. But it was a wonderful experience. How far after being in Baghdad was it that you got uh, offered to do the uh, heritage report on the C-130H for the RAF Museum? Ah, well, I did that in retirement. I, I, ah. I actually had two uh, two-star jobs after Baghdad and was happily retired. And um, uh, Dave Richardson rang me and asked me to uh, go back through all of the Union history reports and, and uh, do a heritage report. And it uh, was a wonderful job. I sat on my balcony and uh, in, uh, in, in the autumn uh, typing away, reading all these glorious old unit history reports. They were wonderful. 
<laughs> so is it is it a compilation of all that or a summary or it's a summary of what it it turns the unit histories around the unit history reports uh, describe each task that the uh, squadrons performed and what i did is went through and turned it all around and described all of the tasks that each tail number had performed and okay. what we were trying to do was determine which was the most historically significant age model to determine which one should go down to the uh, museum at point cook and what i what i found was that they're all highly significant. They've all got a long list of adventures to their name and they're, they're sort of uh, not a dud among them. But number 10, 11, 6 uh, and I think 2 were uh, really stood out as uh, as real warbirds. My, I've got a soft spot for number 10 because it was the one that came and rescued all my Australians in number 10. <laughs> So, oh, this is very, it's the aircraft I was most happy to see in my entire life. So I had a soft yep. spot for that one. I think it was so, number. I think it was number five that had the tail out on it. Was there any um, significance with that aircraft getting that, or was it just luck of the draw? Uh, it, it turned out uh, because because there wasn't a great deal in it. Um, it was the one that had come most recently out of out of maintenance and uh, was the freshest and looked the best. So um, I was very happy to go back and have a have a, a good look at all of that. I was most amused with some of the entries in the unit history. There was a great little entry from 2002 where a young flying officer had been involved in uh, welcoming back the victorious troops from the short war in the Middle East, which we'd just fought and everybody thought was over. And um, they'd been tasked as a two-ship to go up and um, fly past the victorious troops marching down the main street of Brisbane, if I remember rightly. And uh, in, in this unit history report, he sardonically commented that, hmm, we're still in the Middle East. I bet we still are in 10 years too. Oh, no. And he was absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure how that got past his supervisors. They must have been watching. But yeah. it, was, it was most amusing. <laughs> yeah, sort of like one of those uh, anecdotal comments in the in the margin that gets past the censor. Yes, exactly <laughs> right. And, and a most prescient uh, comment. I think it's going. I think it's going to be well and truly um, 14 or 15 years, which is an extraordinary commitment. It's a long time, and it's taken so much. It's been so much hard work for them, and taken so much out of them. It's been. Um, it's what we're, what they're there for, but it's been an enormously long and difficult deployment to sustain. About the only thing comparable is the even longer deployment that the P3 guys have done. They've been there forever. Yeah, well, they've only just finished and come back now. And... Yes, they were there before it all started. It's, it's utterly exhausting. It's enormously expensive. It chews up your spares infantry in a, in a way that is absolutely ferocious because the pipeline is so long, uh, and it chews up your people. You, you yep. just have to rotate them and rest them. You just can't keep sending them back again and again, although I, I understand there are loadmasters on C-130s now who've done 15 tours. Jeez. Gee whiz. And that's, that's under significant military threat. These aren't just yeah, sort of... Yeah, they're front line. Yeah, yeah, they're donning the battle armour and, and into forward airfields where they're being routinely fired on. Yep. So it's been a long, long, difficult set of deployments and it's really taken a great deal out of the people in the aircraft. But that's what they're there for and uh, that's why we all join up to do it. But I don't think there'll be too many people pining for um, a deployment <laughs> to the Middle East for some time when it eventually does end. Well, um, mate, uh, as we're getting pretty close to the end of our allotted time, and in, in fact, have probably have gone past that, with the Heritage Report, is that ever going to be released to the public? Is that available for general consumption, or is it uh, is it kept in the archives and um, used for internal well, I reference? Think it'll, I, I don't think there was nothing particularly classified in it. I was very careful not to put any classified data in it, uh, and it's not uh, it's not particular. It's not actually not classified, but it's it's owned by the people who commissioned it, and uh, I I wouldn't be able to release it on their behalf. But mm -hmm. if you'd like to get hold of it, um, the chap to talk to is uh, Group Captain Dave Richardson 
who's based in Canberra, the Defence Directory can uh, get you onto him, and I'm sure he'd probably release one to you if you asked him nicely. But it's a great read. <laughs> a cracking yarn. <laughs> Best kind. <laughs> well, Greg, I tell you what, I, the Hercules is far and away my favourite aircraft, and if you had another three or four hours to chat, I, I'm sure I could sit here and we could uh, chat all night, but uh, we should let you go. Uh, Air Vice Marshal Greg Evans, Royal Australian Air Force retired. It's been an absolute privilege to uh, talk to you this evening, and uh, thanks very much for joining us. I've had great fun. Thank you for talking to me. Cheers. Plan your flight, fly your plan. With Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breeze and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only $74.99, so get your copy today. For your free one month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes Store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. Want to see Sydney from a different angle? Red Baron Adventures have the flight experience for you. From the aerobatic thrills of the Red Bull stunt plane to scenic flights over Sydney Harbour, there's something for everyone. So check it out at redbaron.com.au for the best seat in the house. Get your genuine Nanchang CJ6A flight today with Adventure Wings at Turretin. Special offer for PCDU listeners. Adventurewings.com.au Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. And welcome back, folks. Well, Grant, I tell you what, uh, a fascinating conversation there with uh, with Greg Evans. And uh, I, I tell you what, um, not only did he speak so passionately about flying the aircraft, but uh, boy, it was great to reminisce with someone who, as luck would have it, was flying the skies of Arkansas at the same time I was. Yeah, and he survived. That's scary. He was able to confirm that the skies were still safe after you left as well. In fact, probably safer. Yeah, well, they were probably a lot safer because he was flying there, if, if I had to guess, because uh, <laughs> I was a pretty uh, raw student pilot back in those days. But uh, yeah, it was interesting because... Uh, flying over, and you know, I've talked about this probably several times over the course of the years, but uh, Little Rock Air Force Base is pretty much right in the middle of the state, and so the aircraft uh, usually fan out in columns uh, to all parts of the state and beyond uh, during, during the training flights coming out of that base, and uh, you really do have to keep your eyes open uh, and make sure that you uh, don't sort of stray into their path at times uh, when you're flying. <laughs> and of course, the closer you get into Little Rock, and uh, the town where I was based was about 50 or so miles north of there, the closer you get into um, the Little Rock Airport, uh, or Adams Field as it's known, which is really just down the just down the interstate a little from the Air Force Base, uh, you do sort of have to keep your wits about you, and it's just lucky that they have such good radar coverage over there in the US. <laughs> yeah, watch out, Big Bird. There's another little one coming in your way. So uh, as the C-130H fleet uh, now goes off into uh, Royal Australian Air Force history, of course, uh, four of those aircraft are uh, apparently heading off to Indonesia as a gift of the Australian government. Uh, Our sources up there at Richmond uh, tell us that uh, some of the aircraft have still been flying, I guess, while they're readying them and getting them up to a standard where they can be uh, transferred over. What happens to some of those other aircraft? Well, of course, uh, Aircraft 11 uh, has uh, come down here. That's an H model. It'll join the E model and the A model that are already here at the uh, the Air Force Museum here at Point Cook in Melbourne. So we know we 
know what's happening to that one. But as for the rest, well, that's anybody's guess. But, uh, you know, there, there's so many other nations still using these. I note with interest, in fact, Grant, that the Israeli Air Force has uh, just um, put out a press release recently saying that they'll be uh, doing a huge uh, digital upgrade, in fact, to their C-130H fleet. So as we heard in the interviews there, the Kiwis are still operating theirs and a number of those aircraft have uh, recently had uh, come back from a uh, pretty extensive life extension program. So it's not as if uh, I think we won't see C-130H aircraft uh, flying our skies occasionally. Of course, you know, the Americans will be bringing theirs in from time to time as well. So it's just that we won't see any with uh, RAF Randalls on them anymore. That's right, mate. And apparently the word is the first C-130H that's being readied for the gifting to Indonesia is in the air uh, on a test flight after its deep level maintenance. So significant amount of work performed on it by Qantas Defence Services apparently. And uh, that's serial number A97-006 as uh, the last aircraft to go through deep maintenance and uh, is going to be heading over to Indonesia is the word. Now, uh, once again, uh, it was an absolute privilege to be able to get on that flight. Uh, It was a very rough flight, I must tell you that, uh, and I've mentioned in other podcasts, that uh, most of the people on board the aircraft that I were on that day were uh, feeling rather green. Um, Fortunately, I didn't manage to uh, bring up any of my lunch, but uh, I did have to sit there for a while with my eyes shut and uh, just concentrate on my breathing. But uh, it was uh, still, despite all of that, uh, an absolute privilege to be on that flight. I've always wanted to ride on a Hercules. And, uh, you know, I know for some of our uh, audience members who perhaps served in the military and have spent a lot of time on them, like, "Uh well, you know. Well, I can tell you, for me, it was a big thing, something that I could really uh, cross off the bucket list. And, uh, yeah, Grant, I, th- I think we're going to set our sights on a C-17 or a C-27 for the next ride. Oh, mate, I reckon the C-27's got to be the go because uh, it can combine both our favourite things. You can get a flight on a transport and I can go inverted. <laughs> there you go. Well, we want to extend our gratitude and thanks uh, to uh, everybody who's uh, served uh, our nation uh, flying in those aircraft in any capacity over the 34 years uh, that it was in operation here. A mighty aircraft, and of course, uh, the aircraft is nothing without uh, you guys who uh, obviously uh, looked after the aircraft and provided uh, such professionalism to it. It certainly shows those aircraft uh, looked every bit as new as the day they came here, and they were flown uh, absolutely expertly. Couldn't fault them at all, Grant. That's right, mate. And we'd also like to extend our thanks to uh, Ben Wickham from the uh, Defence Force Media Group and uh, also to Eamon Hamilton, the uh, public affairs officer with the Airlift Group, both of whom were instrumental in helping us out with information, access to people for uh, subsequent interviews, and of course for uh, getting Steve onto that aircraft as part of the shortlist of media people who were allowed on. So yeah, thanks guys, really appreciate all the help there. Fantastic. Well, that's everything we have for you on this episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. As an end-of-show clip this time, we're not going to have a blooper reel, but uh, just stick around for that. And uh, that's a a bit of a radio interview that I did uh, following my flight over Sydney, and I did that on uh, 2GB with uh, Steve Price. You know, you see, Grant, uh, eventually I'll get myself onto radio one way or the other. Yeah, mate, by hook or by crook. Thanks very much for listening, folks. We hope you enjoyed this very special episode. We'll be back very soon, Grant, with episode number 100. 100. And uh, we're looking forward to a fantastic uh, big episode there. So uh, that'll be along in just a couple of weeks from now. And uh, following that, uh, we'll be off to Avalon. So uh, lots coming up this year. It is an Avalon year, so it's going to be a a very, very exciting year of aviation here in the Great Southern Land. Until next time, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU, and for more information about the team, feedback, storylines you'd like us to follow, or any advertising inquiries, go to our website, planecrazydownunder.com. Plane Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production.
The kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Six three five double six double seven. You're listening to Nights with Steve Price right across Australia on two GB eight seven three. The Power Station coming out to eleven o'clock after eleven. We'll look at that pulver sentencing from today. One of our listeners sent me an email today. You might recall on Ray's program yesterday the flyover of the C one thirty H Hercules aircraft uh, took place. Ray tracked them as they uh, flew above Sydney. Uh, one of our listeners was lucky enough to be on board. He is uh, hes an aviation nut, to be honest. He hosts a podcast called Playing Crazy Down Under. Steve Vischer, afternoon to you, evening to you. Yeah, good day, Steve. Uh, you were lucky to get on board there. Very, very fortunate, mate. I felt very, very privileged. And you had a pretty good view of Sydney. Uh, weather wasn't bad. Yeah, it was a little bumpy up there. It was quite surprising, actually, when they were down there flying uh, just over the city. It was uh, quite bumpy in the back there, but, uh, yeah, still the uh, skies were clear enough for a pretty good view. How did you manage to jag the ride? Well, <laughs> I, uh, we've been working at our podcast here for about four years, and uh, we've worked very hard to make it a, you know, a, a production that uh, gets some uh, notoriety within the aviation industry. And I guess uh, after four years of hard work... Uh, we were very lucky to uh, be included on the media list, so uh, yeah, very, very fortunate. Did you take off from Richmond? Yeah, we took off from Richmond. Yeah. Uh, and what do you? What can you tell me about the? These are the workhorse of the Air Force, aren't they? These Hercs. Yeah, they certainly are. These uh, the Royal Australian Air Force has two models. They have the H model, uh, which is the one being retired, and the J model, which is the more modern version. Uh, this and of course they've got the C-17s as well, which are now they're a much newer aircraft and will be taking up the slack now that the H's are going. But uh, these H models have been around since 1978, and uh, according to uh, the Air Force, they've, they've flown enough uh, kilometres to uh, gone around the world about 50 times. So they've done a fair bit of work. That, is that old in aircraft terms? 78. Well. Uh, yeah. These aircraft don't age like uh, motor vehicles do, of course. They're maintained to a much higher standard. And, of course, with the, uh, the high operational tempo of uh, Air Force aircraft, uh, that uh, you know dictates that they must be maintained to a pretty high standard. So, yes, it is old. But uh, as the uh, RAF was saying yesterday, if, uh, if they wanted to, they could probably run these aircraft another 20 years. But uh, the government's decided they want to dispose of them. So that's what's happening. I always think, though, of aircraft, when you, when you hit the runway, you hit it pretty hard. It must send tremendous stress through the aircraft frame. Well, I imagine it would have been particularly uh, these Hercules obviously going into, uh, you know, pretty... Uh, 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 war-torn areas, uh, you know, a lot of the, the way they operate these aircraft in particular dictate that they have to be pretty rough with them. But, uh, you know, uh, you know that as I say, that means that they have to be maintained to a very high standard. And in the case of the Hercules, this is what they're designed to do. And uh, it's a 50-year-old design. 
and uh, it'll be around probably another 50 years, I think, in uh, various different forms, and so uh, it's obviously a proven uh, workhorse. Ramp opens up at the back, and they can fly it and uh, tip stuff out the back, of course, and they can drive uh, vehicles in and out of these things. Yeah, they can. They can uh, They can put anything, uh, you know, they can, uh, in fact, recently they dropped a bulldozer out of the back of one for, for the Army. I so, saw uh, that picture. Yeah, they can do anything... Uh, Anything like that, and of course paratroopers as well if they want to do that sort of stuff. So the Hercules, uh, you know, they even fly them down to Antarctica for resupply missions. Uh, the US Air Force does that. So, uh, yeah, it's a very, very versatile uh, aircraft and a fantastic uh, workhorse. It would be a shame to see these H models go. how the city look from the flight deck? Oh, it looks spectacular, actually. I'm a, I'm a Melbourneite, so I don't get up to Sydney all that often. But, uh, you know, it's very iconic, obviously, flying over and seeing the views of the... Uh, the Opera House there and the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and I was very fortunate enough to be up on the flight deck as we overflew there. So, uh, yeah, it looked fantastic. Well, you took some lovely pictures. We're going to put them up on our website. Steve, nice to talk to you, mate. Nice to talk to you. Thanks, Steve. Steve Isher there, who hosts a podcast, Plane Crazy Down Under. You can look that up, obviously, online, and as soon as we can, we'll pop those pictures up on our website, 2GB.com. 2GB.